0: Minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff.
1: DGP nominal, where the universe is a figment of its own imagination. All systems remain nominal, nominal, nominal.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. With me on the show tonight is my regular co host, John Berger. How are you doing, John?
1: Doing well, doing well, getting ready to prepare, leaving England over here right now as we record. Like it really matters, you know, July 4th, we handed a piece of paper to, to uh, the Continental Congress, whatever. <laughs> Really? Well, no, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. That's that's July 4th. We handed a piece of paper to the Continental Congress. <laughs> Nothing really happened except for, you know, several years after that. Or you can- whatever. We're like, we're Yankees. We just do that sort of thing.
2: Or you can look at it at the way it's the, it's the day when we had uh, interdependence and um, <laughs> I fought off those aliens. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nice, well played. <laughs> it took me a few seconds to realize what the hell you were talking about. <laughs>
2: right, shall we get the show on the road with some news, sir?
1: Oh, yes, yeah, sure. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news.
2: The European Space Agency is actively working with China with the goal of placing a European astronaut on the Chinese space station as part of a relationship that is likely to grow now that ESA governments have made China one of their three long-term strategic partners for the agency. Government ministers from the 22-nation ESA, with the recent addition of um, Hungary and Estonia, for the first time formally listed China alongside the United States and Russia as core ESA strategic partners. ESA astronauts have visited China's astronaut training facilities and several are learning to speak Chinese as part of the ESA partnership with the China Man's Spaceflight Office. Uh, addressing a press briefing on ESA's plans for 2015, Director General Jean-Jacques Dordain said the agency's available funding is up by 8% f- from 2014 with €4.43 billion Euros, or 5%. 0.32 billion dollars at the current exchange rates so that's quite a lot of money <laughs> Just a little bit. The figure includes more than 1 billion euros coming from the European (laughs) Executive Commission, which has hired ESA to act as a technical manager for the EU's Galileo Navigation Project and its Copernicus uh, Environment Monitoring Network of Satellites. The figure also includes 122 million euros from... Europe's uh, meteorological um, satellite organisation based in Darmstadt in Germany. So a lot of things they're getting involved in there. Strangely the, the Chinese thing, it came about just after the Russians decided that they were going to pull out of the um, International Space Station in 2024. So the, the Europeans are like, ah, hang on. <laughs> we're going to lose something here but let's start doing business with the Chinese.
1: Well, you know, can't really blame him.
2: I mean, they've got this space station up there that's not actually doing anything. It's, I mean, they've been up there once, and um, they they keep doing tests on it every now and then. They, they can power it all up from, from Earth and just run tests and things to make sure everything's running okay. But why not have some other people go up there and train and things um, it it makes sense really it makes sense for them financially I'd imagine as well
1: I would think I mean it does seem like a wasted opportunity why have it there if you're not gonna use it
2: that's it I I think they did it to prove they can do it Um, I mean, they did that in the space of like 10 years. A rocket that can send cargo up into space, join the bits and pieces together, get a crew up there, have the first, I think it was the first Chinese woman in space who actually went to the space station as well. And it was just to prove that they could actually do it. And as I say, there's been nobody on this space station ever since.
1: NASA's starting to go full force on its Europa mission. Uh, They've decided on what instruments they're going to use, and it's going to be a combination of cameras, of course, spectrometers, penetrating radars. The whole thing is that Europa seems to have uh, a large ocean underneath its surface, and they're trying to see if that ocean might have the possibility of sustaining life out, you know, which would be the first indication of any kind of life outside of Earth. So uh, they're also going to have magnetometers, thermal instruments, and so forth, because Hubble has noticed uh, little spurts of water like geysers going on on Europa's surface. NASA's finally starting to go all out on this. They did put it in the budget, and apparently it's been approved, so now they're starting to look for partners to, to work with them on this. They plan on having the mission doing 45 flybys at altitudes ranging from 16 miles to 1,700 miles. Wow. 16 (laughs) miles. So uh, for those uh, in the metric system, that's 25 kilometers to 2,700 kilometers. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be an amazing mission if they can get anything out of it. Well, just the cameras alone. Mm, I mean, definitely. sixteen miles. That's pretty close, isn't it? Yeah, isn't I mean, e- even if they just go up there with a standard HD camera, that's going to be providing some amazing images. That is for sure. Wow! But then, uh, you know, between the spectrometers and the magnetometers and so forth, they're basically trying to find out if there is any. Well, they're trying to find out if there really is an ocean under there, and if there is, how you know what what its salinity is, uh, temperature, and all of that, just to see. Is there a possibility that there is life on Europa? So this is the
2: thing. It's it's, it's, it's your definition of life, really, isn't it? Because well, granted, um, I mean they might have a, a different based life form, like instead of having a carbon based life form, having silicon based life form or, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, which would make them completely different, uh, reactive to anything that we have on Earth, really. But some people their definition of life is some bug-eyed alien you know it's um <laughs> but it does not always work like that
1: i would assume that they're going for the possibility of just things like maybe microbes of some kind yeah like an amoeba type thing. yeah yeah definitely <laughs>
2: Despite warnings from NASA that any cuts to the commercial crew funding would delay the program, the Senate has decided to slash nearly $350 million from the agency's budget because they believe that the program has already been suffering delays. On the 11th of June, a Senate committee approved a 2016 spending bill for NASA and other agencies that provided funding for NASA's Commercial Crew Program. In a report accompanying the bill, it states... To date, milestones intended to show progress in the development of the ISS crew capability have already begun to be delayed. An additional factor in the committee's decision is NASA's intent to procure Soyuz seats for flights to the International Space Station in the year 2018, a year after the commercial crew vehicles are scheduled to be in service. Those plans, the report stated, indicate that NASA does not have confidence that even with significant financial and technological support, the availability of a reliable domestic ISS crew capability by 2017 is not going to be guaranteed. The committee aide suggested that NASA should solve its commercial crew funding shortfall by diverting the funding from the Soyuz seats.
1: Huh, huh. That just screams anti-Russian politics there.
2: It's, it's almost like putting a carrot in front of a donkey you know, it's, um, and one hand it's like well we won't give you any more funding so you'd have to get rid of the Russian seats so that you can pay the shortfall that means you'd have to speed up the process to get the crew capabilities running Uh, but that also means they've got to rush it which means cutting corners Um, and haven't they learned anything from the shuttle
1: (laughs) well yeah uh, (laughs) uh, it's a different topic there I don't know. (laughs) To me, it just sounds like, hey, we have an excuse here to not give Russia any of our money. And let's just say that it's because of other reasons. That's just maybe that's just the cynic in me. You
2: can see their point, though. Why ask for funding for the, the seats on the Soyuz if they're going to have their capsules ready for for use? Um, It's between a rock and a hard place, really. NASA are on a loser with this one straight away. And I I don't think that the government really wanted them to go ahead with this from from day one. And they seem to just be putting stumbling blocks up, um, whatever.
1: Well, I mean, let's face it. Congress clearly doesn't have... Uh, science as being one of the top priorities in their mind. There are other things that they would rather fund and and once again this is not a political show so I'm not going to go down there but uh, they've just made it clear that a lot of people that are going on these advisory boards and so forth well, just science is not what they think is is the priority, and that's a problem. You don't put somebody who think, you know what? Damn it, I'm just going to say it. These are people who think the Bible comes before science. Yeah. And sorry, these are not the people that you want on a freaking scientific
2: board. This is very, very true. Very, very true. It's these these guys are making the decisions, and um... yeah, I know. Doesn't mean I can't rant about it. <laughs>
1: Well, something that I wish I could do. Uh, Looks like uh, Philae has awakened. Everything was kind of thought lost because it ended up on that comet and ended up in a shadow. And lost power, went to sleep back in November, I believe. And they kind of were like, well, we don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to sit here and wait. And sure enough, the lander woke up. It finally got enough power from its solar cells that it contacted the ground team for about 85 seconds. And it also, it also reported that it had been up for a little while because it had some historical data uh, saying that it had more than 300 dated packets that it sent back reporting on its condition and other information and so forth. But it still had 10 times that amount in its backlog that it was uh, waiting to send. So it had actually been awake for either either it had been awake for a little while or maybe it had that recorded before it went to sleep and managed to save it somewhere, whatever. But, yeah, so it shut down on November 15th after about 60 hours of operation, and then it just, Rosetta started listening to it again around March 12th, and it finally got another signal to it. So, everything is, it, well, I mean, it, the first instruments backed or they activated uh, for temperature, magnetic fields, and so forth, and then it waited for more power-hungry operations like uh, the radio ranging and picture-taking. So, you know, that's the stuff that they hope to use to pinpoint where it finally landed. I mean, they have some images where they think they know where it landed, Mm -hmm. but they're not absolutely sure, so they're hoping to be able to figure that out. So they're just going to keep going. They're hoping that it can use its batteries to fire up its uh, heat samplers. So, you know, to, to be able to drill into the soil and, and burn the stuff to see what it's made out of. So it's it's a, it's alive, alive, all of that stuff. It's, so. it's
2: almost like a, um, a scientific fairy tale, isn't it? Yeah. Although the story that I was reading in uh, in The Guardian, um, actually, let me find it. It starts off um, from aliens bursting from crew members' chests to onboard computers <laughs> developing psychopathic minds of their own. Waking up from space hibernation rarely results in a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> But but a real life space voyage has bucked the trend of science fiction counterparts such as Alien and 2001: A Space Odyssey, as one of humankind's greatest achievements woke up to the great relief of its earthbound masters.
1: <laughs> nice. Hey, Buck Rogers made it for 500 years. This is true. A Ranger 3. <laughs> Yay.
2: Um, <laughs> but yeah it's it's been uh, an amazing and and the little tweets that were coming in as well um hello earth can you hear me i thought that was <laughs> amazing
1: <laughs> yeah that's all cool they get to get a little bit more data out of it so what they what that's also had the result of is that they've now extended rosetta's mission it was originally supposed to be funded only until december of this year uh but ESA decided that they're going to give it an additional nine months, you know, of funding, so that they can basically get as much data as they can before they completely lose contact. Because at that point, uh, it's going to be far enough away from the sun that it won't be able to run anymore. Yeah. And um, at that point, they're going to have well, they're going to have no choice. It's going to have to shut down. And then they're going to start a slow little spiral for Rosetta to crash down into the comet. Uh, over, it's going to take them about three months for it to do that crash landing. So, uh, boy, at that rate, three months from where it's at, that's not going to be much of a crash landing. That's going to be a really soft landing, soft I would landing. think. Uh, but they've, they've made it sound a lot romantic
2: by saying that so that Philae and Rosetta can be together again.
1: Aww. <laughs> they so cute. <laughs> Although, I mean, that, that's all. that also means that there are going to be two man-made objects on this comet that's heading out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: SpaceX has begun erecting a new hangar at the former Space Shuttle launch pad in Florida. Positioned at the south perimeter of Launch Pad 39A, the hangar sits on the gravel crawlerway that used to transport the Saturn V moon rockets and uh, space shuttles from the nearby Vehicle Assembly Building to the launch pad. SpaceX has no plans to use the Mammoth VAB, the crawlerway, or NASA's huge diesel powered crawler transporters, which are being upgraded for the Space Launch System. The rocket uh, SpaceX plans to send up to launch from 39A is not as big as NASA's mega rocket, but it'll be the most powerful launcher flying when it debuts. The Falcon Heavy rocket, fitted with 28 kerosene-fueled engines, is scheduled for its first test launch in the third quarter of 2015. You may have heard me in the past stating that the Falcon Heavy would have 32 engines, well, this was before SpaceX was using their new engines. They were still using the Merlin 1C engines. Now that SpaceX is using the Merlin 1D, the Falcon Heavy only requires 28 engines to create the same amount of power. That's pretty amazing.
1: <laughs> and it's, that's a huge amount of power, too. It is, its
2: is. I'd love to be there for a launch of one of these things because huh. the, the feeling you, you get will be... Outstanding. I, I mean, I can only imagine what the the, um, the Saturn Vs were like when they launched. I mean, I've been there for a, a shuttle launch, and that is pretty punchy <laughs> as it was. Yeah. So those things must have been just monstrous, really. <laughs> After laying the building's foundation, the Hawthorne California-based space company started building the frame of the hangar in late February, and it's it's actually just completed them now. Just as rivals Boeing and United Launch Alliance broke ground on a new access tower at nearby Complex 41 launch pad, both facilities will launch astronauts on test flights of their new commercial ferry capsules in 2017. It's sad to to think that the the actual crawlerway isn't going to be used anymore, but it's it's great to just see that the next generation are there to fill the boots as it were.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it was made for the shuttle, so what are they going to do with it, you know?
2: Yeah. The inaugural test launch of the Falcon Heavy will occur from Pad 39A, marking the first liftoff from the Seaside Launch Complex since the end of the Space Shuttle program in 2011. The 39A was the starting point for all of the Apollo moon landing uh, missions, plus the first and last of the space shuttle. In April 2014, SpaceX signed a 20-year lease for the the launch complex with NASA, uh, which retains the ownership of the pad. Um, NASA is hanging on to the launch pad 39B at the Kennedy Space Center's uh, other uh, Apollo and Shuttle-era launch facility to host the SLS missions uh, beginning in 2018. But while we're still at KSC, the Florida runway, where the space shuttle's touched down for nearly 30 years, has a new mission. On June the 22nd, NASA formally transferred control of the shuttle landing facility to Space Florida, Um, and they've got to use that now for the next 30 years. This is a historic event for the state of Florida. With this agreement, Florida will gain access to both unrestricted airspace and one of the longest runways in the world, which will provide the Space Coast with competitive advantage, uh, said Governor Rick Scott on June 15th. Space Florida intends to offer the shuttle landing facility as a testing ground for new technologies and companies, including the Unmanned Aerial Vehicle, the uh, uav systems and the new generation of horizontal launch space vehicles the air force also stated it intends to use the runway to land its uncrewed x-37b orbital test vehicle beginning possibly with the end of the mini shuttle's current mission which launched in may yeah i think they can do a, a a lot with it. I've actually got a story later on that um might be able to use their facilities there and just mention the fact that it was Space Florida, um once again Ryan Ryan Cobrick may be involved in this somewhere along the line hmm. as he does work for them. And it's basically his job to, to drum up business. So um I would imagine yeah, it will be involved somewhere.
1: <laughs> if it just sits there for 30 years, by the time they decide, hey, we need to use this again, it'll probably be in such bad shape, you know, even after just 30 years, that it, you know, who knows what condition it would be in. Yeah, At least that's... this way, someone will, be ha- someone will have and they'll maintain it.
2: I mean, if, if they left it as it was, I mean, all you could probably use it for is a place to put a flea market, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, Going to refresh the whole space coast. I think it's it's been a bit stale for a while. I know we've been having a, a few launches here and there. Obviously, the SpaceX launches have been going from there. But now that they've got their new facilities and everything, and the runway is going to be there for for other opportunities, it's it's going to be quite a busy area again. I think.
1: Yeah, probably It'd also be a great place for an air show. Oh yeah. Well, NASA tried once again to uh, do their low-density supersonic decelerator, known as the LDSD, and uh, that one is... uh, It took off by balloon from Hawaii, and then once it reaches a certain height that's meant to simulate the Martian atmosphere, it kicks on its rockets to reach Mach 4, and uh, then they shoot out this uh, round balloon to try to slow it down, followed by a parachute, and they're hoping that these tests will allow it to, well, the, well they're trying to test a, a Martian landing, uh, that it will be easier, to, easier on the equipment and so forth. And so, well, the, the uh, large uh, balloon known as the SAID, oh, what is that? The Right, the Supersonic Inflatable Aerodynamic Decelerator. So they're going at Mach 4, and this big balloon around the, the vehicle opens up, which slows it down, and then they deploy their parachute. But for the second time, the chute got shredded when it was deployed. That's why they run these tests. I was watching it live, and it's, just, it's kind of weird to just see this balloon take off, and off it goes. You know, the camera's following it the whole time. It takes about three hours for it to reach the height that it needs. And then it just k- gets rid of the balloon, mm-hmm. fires off its rocket engine, accelerates to Mach 4, and then does what it needs to do. And, it well, it got 50% right. Now, they, they did say that this time they got some readings that kind of indicate like the, the first time there was actually a problem with the deployment. This time, they don't know that it was a problem with the deployment as much as a problem with the chute itself. So it's like for a fraction of a second they got a little bit farther than they did the first time, but it still resulted in the the chute shri- just shredding. This is why they do this kind of testing. They do it until they get it right. The previous one was very cool with you know, dropping the, the vehicle down on a tether and then kicking off once it's deployed. But, uh, I mean, th- this is meant to be less, I don't want to say harsh, but you know, th- that was a really tough landing that they did with that previous one. So they're trying to just make the landings a bit easier to do, and it's actually a rather large vehicle too. So maybe that could mean that they could deploy larger vehicles up on Mars, you know. And and with this method, if they can slow it down so that they can just deploy it with a shoot, that would be fantastic.
2: With uh, Boeing and SpaceX receiving the coveted commercial crew transportation contracts to ferry NASA astronauts to and from the International Space Station, Sierra Nevada's corporation, uh, the Dream Chaser space plane, was left out in the cold. While the company has filed a formal appeal... Pertaining to the specifics of that uh, commercial crew contract selection process, Sierra Nevada has also begun studies and initiatives to further the Dream Chaser cause and market the space plane's multi-use capabilities for the commercial and government space environment, including the space plane's unique characteristics that are not shared by any other current or in-development government or commercial space vehicle. Part of this campaign involves Sierra Nevada's Corporation's joint study with Strato Launch Systems to pair Dream Chaser with Strato Launch Systems Air Launch Service Vehicle, which is not easy to say. Um, <laughs> According to the study document released by Vulcan Aerospace Corporation and Sierra Nevada, the companies have collaborated on a space transportation architecture utilising the Stratolaunch aircraft as a launch platform and the Dream Chaser uh, spacecraft as the payload. This configuration, according to the study, will result in an unmatched mission flexibility and capability, including... ISS rescue, suborbital research, and suborbital point-to-point transportation. The exact architecture of this launch system would actually be a variant of the commercial crew Dream Chaser vehicle, not the full-scale model that was under the development as part of NASA's commercial crew transportation contract process, in fact, both companies state that the res- uh, in the research document that pairing Dream Chaser with the Strato launch platform contains numerous technical advantages that are unique among the available spaceflight offerings. In all, the combined Strato Launch and Scaled Down versions of the Dream Chaser would weigh 1.3 million pounds at takeoff, with the Strato Launch air carrier vehicle reaching a wingspan of more than 380 feet. The Strato Launch carrier aircraft would have an outbound range of a 1,000 nautical miles to a desired air launch location and then will be powered by six 747 jet engines. That's mm. pretty powerful. Yeah. <laughs> this would require that the Strato-launch carrier a- aircraft have a runway of at least 12,500 feet in length for takeoff and landing. So the prime candidate would be the newly commercial available runway at kennedy as part of this launch configuration the scaled down version of the dream chaser will be hosted in a forward position of an orbital atk rocket propelled launch vehicle according to the strato launch and sierra nevada corporation document orbital atk are an adapting a pegasus system to develop this new air launch vehicle for the strato launch this rocket propelled multi-stage launch vehicle would be nearly 120 feet in length and would drop launch from the bottom of the strata-launch carrier aircraft at an altitude of 30,000 feet. Now, I've put some pictures up on the uh, show notes. It's very much like the setup at Virgin Galactic, but bigger. <laughs> <laughs> A lot bigger. So, yeah, so you've got Orbital uh, ATK doing the actual rocket part of it. So you've got the... Dream Chaser strapped to the top of that rocket, and that's strapped underneath this um, Strato Launch carrier aircraft, which sounds absolutely huge. <laughs> <laughs> so it's changed a lot from just being launched vertically from a launch pad and then um, deploying like a, uh, a shuttle would. After that, after the uh, first stage dropped away from it, so they've they've done a lot of research onto this, um, and
1: hopefully. Some will come off for them. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I'm questioning about the whole, I mean, and the thing is adorable. I mean, it looks like a little shuttle with the wings folded up, but I mean, it, it's not very big. I mean, it, it, it's it's actually a relatively small vessel. Mm. I'm, so I'm just wondering, what are they going to do? I mean, what are they really going to be able to do with it? Well, you know, it's like maybe you know supply missions to the space station and so forth. But I mean, it's it's not all that big. Well, they said that they were going to use it. Well, one of the things they were going to use it
2: for was rescue missions to the ISS if there was problems on board. But how often does that happen?
1: Right. I don't. Well, think... no, but I mean, it'd be good to have it on standby for that sort of thing. But it's not going to be funded just to be a rescue vehicle that might never be
2: used. Mm. Um, there's other things I could probably use uh, the, the two versions of the sh- of the ship, so that you've got one for cargo, one for crew. Um, right. I'd imagine you could get quite a lot of those cube in the back oh, of yeah, one of those. Yeah. It just seems to be the thing now because of the cost. It's it's so much cheaper sending those things into space.
1: Have you seen the first 3D printed thruster? I haven't seen that. Actually. Yeah, it, it's it's a 3D printed platinum rocket thruster. Wow. This is from Airbus Defense and Space. No more of this little, you know, plastic 3D printing. They're doing metal now. Yeah. And they made this thruster and the combustion chamber and nozzle Mm -hmm. through 3D printing. They put it through 618 ignition tests, and that included a single burn of 32 minutes during which it reached 1253 degrees celsius or almost 2300 degrees fahrenheit for 32 minutes and this it was just 3d printed that is amazing it's just I, it really is just amazing to look at and to see, to see what it looks like after testing it looks like it's still brand new. Mm-hmm. It's it's really amazing they don't say specifically how they do it but I've seen this sort of thing before where they basically use metal powder and then they print it with the high high intensity laser which fuses it together. Yeah, so and, there's uh, absolutely
2: no seams at all are there it's just one solid yeah, piece. Yeah, it's just
1: one solid unit and it, well, it's a combination of platinum and rhodium but I mean what they want to do next is platinum and iridium uh, which apparently has uh, performance advantages uh, and apparently that one cannot be manufactured with traditional techniques so th- which would pretty much make 3d printing the only real way to do this but i mean they can manufacture rocket engines <laughs> they can they can do it with 3d printing
2: yeah uh, uh- I know that um, SpaceX have been experimenting with it as well because on the uh, launch pad abort system on the, uh, mm-hmm. the the new Dragon, the Draco engines on there are three D printed as well. Yeah, um, but
1: I think that's just the combustion chamber. Mm-hmm. This is the combustion chamber and the exhaust nozzle.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's the first of a kind, which is pretty amazing stuff. Especially when you think that three D printing is not that old no it is it really is it's still in its infancy but I don't think there is a single material that you can't work with now on 3D printing I mean they're even making clothes and and stuff out of uh, 3D (laughs) printing so it just blows my mind what can be achieved in such a small time scale you imagine when they've actually got this medium working at full capacity it's you, you can't even fathom where it's going to go.
1: <laughs> no, and then especially once they start doing it on just a massive scale. Because these are still relatively small parts, but could you imagine if they can 3D print like an Atlas engine? <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> and then just the cost benefits of that are going to be amazing. But, oh, yeah, uh, this part's defective. Okay, so let's print a new one, you know, an hour later. Okay, here you go i wasn't wasn't going to put it in the
2: show quite yet because it's in a kind of a kickstarter program they're they're coming up with these 3d cameras that they want to put onto the uh, space station and they're actually going to build them on board the the company that uh, have come up with the idea that the majority of the parts are plastic and they want to work with made in space the company that Makes the three D printer that's up on mm-hmm. the space station, so they're actually going to build these three D cameras well, up on the space, space station. ship
1: an IMAX camera up there,
2: yeah. So it's it's going to be a first of a kind. There's not a lot of information on their website at the moment. Um, they're just saying we need money,
1: <laughs> basically. <laughs> Isn't that always the way?
2: <laughs> so uh, I'm waiting for a bit more information. I've I've um, sent my details off for. Uh, newsletters and things, uh, email newsletters and see where that gets me and uh, yeah, watch this space I'll see if I can get some more information
1: <laughs> As long as you're talking about send us money you might as well talk about light sale Absolutely. Did, did you join the Kickstarter for that? Did you back that? I didn't um, is, <gasps> there's, there's, you
2: there's, got 13 hours <laughs> But uh, they've made well over their oh, budget already I
1: uh, I'm looking r- at it right now they've made They've got 22,158 backers. They've made 1,181,000 plus change, and they only expected a 200,000 goal. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they crushed it, but I signed up for it anyway. So, I'm going to get a little piece of a light sail sent to me. <laughs>
2: Uh, Lightsail was designed by the uh, Planetary Society, a Californian-based non-government organisation. The launch took place on a uh, United Launch Alliance's uh, 206 feet Atlas V rocket at uh, five past five minutes past four British Summer Time, or uh, five minutes past eleven Eastern, from the launch complex 41 at cape canaveral in florida the atlas 5 sent the u.s uh, air forces x 37b space plane on its fourth mission which was also carrying the nasa materials exposure and technology innovation in space or metis uh, that will <laughs> <laughs> expose about 100 different material samples to the space environment for more than 200 days The upper stages of the Atlas V included the National uh, Reconnaissance Office's third auxiliary mission to launch CubeSats. The Ultra-Lightweight Technology and Research Auxiliary Satellite, or the ULTRASAT, carried 10 CubeSats, including the light sail from five organisations. It was made possible through agreements between NASA, the Air Force's Space and Missile Systems Centre and the National Reconnaissance Office to work together on CubeSat integration and launch opportunities. The core of the light sail vehicle weighs just £22 and is 11.8 inches high and 3.9 inches wide, which is about the size of your average loaf of bread. At the bottom of the spacecraft, on each of its four sides, are huge solar sails that have been folded up. This sail, measuring 345 square feet, is made from an extremely reflective material called mylar. It's just 4.5 microns thick. That's about (laughs) the quarter of the thickness of a garbage bag. It's really, really thin. And when it's unfolded, the, the photons from the sun will strike the sail and push it forward, similar to how the sail on Earth catches the wind. The push is extremely minimal, but it is theorized that over time, this push could build up enough to reach high speeds. This is because the force from the sun is constant, and there are no air resistance or friction holding the spacecraft back, so it will always accelerate, said chief executive of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye, the science guy, um, uh, which he said... They'll well, listen are
1: you guys, Do you guys have Bill Nye over there?
2: Most people in the UK know him from the Big Bang theory.
1: <laughs> okay, no, see see he he had a, a regular show over here with a very catchy theme song. So he basically had a, a weekly show that was all about science and so forth and the whole thing was that he was
0: Bill Nye, the science guy. <laughs>
1: so that's what that's all about so he's really really popular over here so that, that's what the whole science guy is that was the name of his show bill nye the science guy
2: he's very eccentric isn't he <laughs> and that's what yes. makes him special <laughs> <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson, the Hayden uh, Planetarium Director and Planetary Society Board of Directors member, added, now this can only come from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh yeah, he's amazing. Um, With the expected launch of light sail, a craft propelled amongst the stars on the pressure of light itself, the expanse of space becoming a literal analogue to the open seas... If space is tomorrow's ocean, then Earth's surface is its shoreline. Now, <laughs> that can only come from him.
1: <laughs> so those two guys are just amazing.
2: Yeah, um, uh, the nearest we have to either of them is, is Professor Brian Cox. But yeah, he is Britain's answer to Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we, we did have a, a guy a bit like Bill Nye in the UK. Um, his his name was Johnny Ball. He was a mathematician, but he also included the, the other sciences as well. So he was one of the first instigators, really, of the STEM subjects. Mm,
0: okay. um,
2: and he did programs called, um, I'm trying to think of the program, Think of a Number, Think Again, and he brought out books, loads of books for kids these shows used to only be on in the in the summer holidays, um, so you know you had six weeks of, if you, if you had nothing to do, you sat there watching Johnny Ball and you actually learnt something um,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it was a really good mission for the light sail and there's no reason why this on a bigger scale could save a lot of money, you, you just need the fuel to get it to a certain point so that it could be deployed, but after that, it's solely on its own power. Yeah, quite amazing and uh, almost. Well, I, I'm just thinking of Tron right now. <laughs> 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 the the solar sailors that were in in Tron that was, uh, and I, I don't know if you've seen them. The um, they, they've been showing some clips. Uh, I know it's on the Planetary Society's website of uh, Carl Sagan talking to
1: Johnny Carson. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's just truly amazing as well. I wasn't even aware of that one until I saw that on the uh, Kickstarter video. Yeah. I was, wow, so this has actually been an idea for a while. Wow, okay, I thought this was kind of a new thing, but I guess not.
2: I think most ideas have been around for a while, but it's just, probably it, it hasn't. The technology hasn't been there to to do it. So, you know, the, you, you, you mothball it for a while and then the technology's around. And it's like, right, let's pull it out and see if we can do something with it. And it was well, 100% successful.
1: Well, I mean, it had a little bit of an issue. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, but, you know, but they, 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 they got it to work.
2: Yeah, they, they did. I mean, there was a couple of uh, telemetry issues, but that, that, that got sorted really quickly actually, I am surprised how quickly that got sorted there is a second mission uh, slated for 2016 and will we'll mark the first controlled Earth orbit solar sail flight, and it will ride along with the first operational launch of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy so nice. that's going to be a date to remember really, because it's going to have two major things going off at once
1: really have they mentioned anything about what the theoretical maximum speed for that thing could be? I
2: haven't seen it anywhere. Um, it's a bit hit and miss, really. Yeah. It's like it says It's it, it, the push is extremely minimal, but it's theorized that over time this, this push could build up
1: enough to reach
2: high speeds, but they just don't really know what it can do.
1: Right. They've been talking about ion engines doing the exact same thing. Yeah. You know, just a little bit of thrust, but just keep it constant. And supposedly that can reach just amazing speeds if they can if they can actually do something with it. I just thought about this. This whole thing reminds me of the... There was a Deep Space Nine episode where they kind of covered this sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think I remember That's, the one. It was a, a completely solar sail-ish kind of thing mm-hmm. about trying to verify... Uh, an old story about the Bajorans actually getting to Cardassia using this unpowered you know just solar sail-ish kind of vehicle mm-hmm. I forgot about that I'm going to have to go back and watch my DS9 it's been too long
2: <laughs> A SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket has suffered a failure just after liftoff on June the 28th uh, during a mission to deliver cargo to the International Space Station The Falcon 9 lifted off on schedule after a problem-free countdown and in good weather conditions. The launch appeared to be going well until after the first stage plume became irregular and seconds later the rocket appeared to disintegrate. A video of the launch showed the anomaly started about 2 minutes and 19 seconds after the launch with a cloud forming near the top of the vehicle. It was not initially clear what was the cause of the failure. The Falcon 9 experienced a problem shortly after the first stage shutdown, SpaceX chief executive Elon Musk tweeted shortly after the failure. We'll provide more information as soon as we review the data. Elon Musk later tweeted that the problem was an overpressurization event of the liquid oxygen tank in the rocket's second stage. This data suggests a counterintuitive cause, he said without elaborating further. I'm glad you didn't elaborate further, because I would have had much difficulty probably saying any of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we saw some pressurisation indications in the second stage, which we'll be tracking down and following up from there, said to- SpaceX president Gwen Shotwell at a briefing. She said she didn't have any additional data about the second stage issue and declined to speculate on the cause of the failure. Of course, it, this was probably a couple of hours or so after the explosion, so they probably didn't have any information at that time anyway. Yeah. Um, the, the mission was licensed by the Federal Aviation Administration's Office of Commercial Space Transportation. And Pam Underwood of the FAA said at the briefing that SpaceX would lead what is officially termed as a mishap investigation being overseen by the FAA. Neither Shotwell or Underwood said how long the investigation would last or its effect on the SpaceX mission um, schedule. It certainly isn't going to be a year, Shotwell said. I imagine just a a number of months or so. NASA officials expressed their disappointment in the failure, but said they continued to support SpaceX and emphasized that the failure would not have an immediate effect on the ISS operations.
1: Space is hard. It certainly is. That's what it comes down to. And, I mean, they'll be fine. I mean, they're still more resupply missions already scheduled Uh, one from Russia one from Japan these things happen I'm already hearing about people saying oh see this is why we shouldn't be going to space what this was the first time in 18 launches that SpaceX had this kind of a problem 18 launches successful yeah That is one hell of a great track record.
2: Yeah, it certainly is. Um, Everyone seems really supportive about it as well. I mean, in official outlets, people are very um, optimistic about it. I mean, you've got Eric Stalmer, the president of the Commercial Space Flight Federation. Um, He said, I think we should just move forward. I think SpaceX will make adjustments and continue to fly. Um, Yeah, I
1: mean, they identified what it was within a day. Yeah. Okay, so... They know now. It's funny, though. A friend of mine was following all this, and he said that the conspiracy theorists are already starting to blame Boeing and, uh, I want want to say Northrop. But it's like, supposedly, supposedly, some of their employees were found in areas of SpaceX where they shouldn't have been. I'm like, are you serious?
2: The (laughs) other one's probably United Launch Alliance because um, they've pretty much got the United States Air Force in the bag, uh, and, and SpaceX are, are being given the permission to compete with them, and of course, this, they're now saying... I, so I do it
1: it It's just funny to see how much the conspiracy theorists, just, for any event, how quickly they come out of the woodwork.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Elon Musk had his 44th birthday on that day as well, and he summed up the day with a tweet, not the best birthday.
1: <laughs> nope. Oh, well, I mean, I was really hoping that they were going to be able to land on the barge this time. That's what I was looking forward to. Different
2: barge. Different barge as well. They were using the um, OK, I Still Love You. (laughs) Yes. I I always forget what that one's called. Um, I actually, I've got a photograph of it this time as well, so it reminded me.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, you know, but one out of 18. Can't argue with that.
2: By the way, if by any chance you think you have located some debris, contact recovery at spacex.com or call 1 866 392 0035. But whatever you do, do not touch it. Some of the debris could be toxic or explosive and potentially hazardous.
1: And whatever you do, don't try to sell it on eBay unless you really do want to go to jail. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) That's what people tried to do when Columbia disintegrated over Texas. It's like, really? How dumb are you?
2: And uh, the difference with this and other explosions, particularly with NASA, where they've been piecing together the bits of debris to work out what happened, SpaceX have been doing it pretty much solely through the data that they they Mm -hmm. received back, uh, and it seems to be a bit more accurate.
1: Well, I'm, I'm sure that they have those things loaded with sensors.
2: SpaceX officials said that the Falcon 9 beamed back more than 3,000 data streams and onboard video as well. So um, that helped a lot. Um, Elon Musk commented via Twitter that measurements from the final few milliseconds of the flight will be run through hex editors and computer programs that allows engineers to manipulate fundamental data. I don't envy that job. (laughs) Mm -mm. Nope. (laughs) After the 28th of June launch, uh, next up on the Falcon 9 manifest was the Jason-3 satellite, a joint US-European ocean observatory. Other missions in the SpaceX pipeline later this year included satellite deliveries for Luxembourg-based operator SES. Orbicom's Maritime and Asset Tracking Service and two more space station cargo missions for NASA. But like we say, at the moment, they've got enough supplies up there to last them until at least, I think they said October. So they've got nothing to worry about there. Um, We've just got to wait and see what happens with the the two um, resupplies from the Russians and the Japanese like you mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah, well, the, the drawback to that is the last three Russian resupply missions have all been failures so uh ho- hopefully this fourth one won't follow the same pattern yeah and if if it does okay come on japan we're counting on you
2: because i mean we've had all three options so far go haven't we we've had the russians we've had the orbital and now spacex so yep fingers crossed I uh, definitely Artifacts recovered from the wreckages of NASA's Challenger and Columbia space shuttles are for the first time now on public display as part of a powerful new exhibit that is intended to honor the two spacecraft and their fallen astronaut crews. NASA officials joined the family members of the fallen crew members on June the 27th to open Forever Remembered, a new permanent exhibit installed under the retired Space Shuttle Atlantis at Kennedy Space Center's Visitor Complex in Florida. The solemn display, developed in secret over the last few years, serves to memorialize the 14 men and women who lost their lives on Challengers and Columbia's ill-fated missions, STS-51L in 1986 and STS-107 in 2003, respectively. From Columbia which was the NASA's first space shuttle to launch in April 1981, the exhibit presents the orbiter's six forward window frames. The window frames are displayed in such a way that they appear to be floating in the formation in the way they were installed on the orbiter's flight deck. It is said that the eyes are the windows of our souls, and I believe that it is true for the windows of Columbia also, said Bob Cabana, Kennedy Space Center director and former shuttle astronaut. When I look into those windows, I see John Young and Bob Crippen preparing to launch on the boldest test flight in history.
1: I know that was years ago, but to me that just still feels like too soon.
2: Yeah, yeah. He said, I also see a much younger Bob Cabana, Uh, launching into space on his first command, he said, referencing his STS-65 mission in 1994. To represent Challenger, NASA selected a large segment of the vehicle's fuselage that is immediately recognisable for the icon painted along its side. Looking at that side wall of Challenger, I see the American flag... And I think of all that it's accomplished, Cabana noted. I see the smiles on the faces of the final crew waving as they they were leaving the crew quarters for the Astrovan and the trip out to the launch pad. And I see our will to preserve, in the face of adversity and come back even stronger. Forever Remembered also features a display for each of the 14 astronauts, including portraits of the crew members and a selection of personal items provided by their family members. At nearly 2,000 square feet, the gallery holds the largest collection of personal items of both flight crews. Items include husband's cowboy boots and Bible, Anderson's vintage Star Trek lunchbox, there are flight jackets, family photographs, and numerous other artefacts offering an insight into the people behind the names on the mission patches. To be honest, when I first read this article, I, I got quite emotional about it because I, I want to go back to Kennedy Space Centre anyway, and it gives me a, a greater reason to do so. And I think visiting there, I will be emotional still. The Space Shuttle Enterprise has also been dedicated to all the fallen crews of the U.S. space flight program. Back on the 27th of April 2012, the Enterprise retired to the Intrepid Sea, Air and Space Museum in New York City. Three years later, the family members of the crews of Apollo 1, Challenger and Columbia gathered at the Intrepid to unveil a new plaque in memory of the mission's crews. It's an honor to have...
0: <coughs> no.
2: "'It's an honour to be here to recognise the crews of Apollo 1, Challenger and Columbia "'as we dedicate the Space Shuttle Enterprise in their honour. "'I thank you all, the the families of our fallen heroes, for joining us today. "'Know that we will never forget your loved ones,' said NASA Administrator Charles Bolden. "'The Space Shuttle Enterprise was NASA's first orbiter, "'which was a prototype that conducted the tests within Earth's atmosphere in 1977.' These tests paved the way for NASA's later Space Shuttle flights into outer space. June Scobie Rogers was married to Francis Dick Scobie when he commanded the STS-51L on the uh, Space Shuttle Challenger on the 28th of January 1986. Mrs Scobie Rogers said both the Challenger and the Enterprise were especially important to her late husband. My husband Dick Scoby was the commander of Challenger, but he was also the commander as a test pilot for the 747 that tested the Enterprise that flew around the world, so it's especially meaningful to us, she said. She added that it's terrific to be here with all the people that we've bonded with when our grief became so public. It helped us to have each other to bond together and support one another. Also attending the dedication ceremony was Lowell Grissom. He is the brother of Virgil Gus Grissom, Apollo 1's command pilot. I'm just so pleased and honoured that the Intrepid has decided to honour these heroes. They contributed so much to the advancement of the space programme and to be here to see the shuttle and to be with the other families is just quite an honour for me too, said Mr Grissom. Yeah, when... uh, June Scobie Rogers uh, mentioned about uh, uh, Dick Scobie actually being involved with the 747 that flew around the world that made me emotional too because uh, it reminded me of my grandfather because he took me to Stansted Airport in the UK in 1983 when Enterprise actually came to the UK and landed at Stansted Airport and it's one of the memories I have of my my grandfather that also means a lot to me too It's because of my grandfather I've got an interest in space actually. (laughs) The the first toys from Star Wars, The The Force Awakens, are set to debut at the San Diego Comic-Con this July, giving fans a chance to snag some of the first pieces of merchandise from the highly anticipated seventh chapter of the Star Wars saga. Many more Star Wars figures are to be announced as the December 18th release date for The Force Awakens approaches. We got to look at some of the merchandise to be based off the First Order Stormtroopers that are featured in, in the film. The first thing that's been revealed Lego Bill,
1: <laughs> Of yeah, course shock.
2: <laughs> Lego's buildable First Order Stormtrooper Has 81 separate pieces That can be assembled into one 9 inch figure With posable limbs It'll be on display at the show, but fans will have to wait until January the 1st before they can actually purchase their own. A life-sized First Order Stormtrooper made completely out of Lego bricks will also be present at the Toy Giants stand at the Comic-Con. Hasbro has finally answered the question if a 6-inch Black Series First Order Stormtrooper will be offered as an exclusive at the show, and yes, it will. The 6-inch figure will be encased in special con-exclusive packaging. This will set you back $24.95 and will be available at the Hasbro booth at the show and afterwards at Hasbro Toy Shop. Wow, $24 for a 6-inch? Yeah. That's not bad at all. For an exclusive packaging as well. Um, That's
1: going to hit eBay real fast.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And finally... Joining Mattel's fleet of die-cast Star Wars-themed cars will be the new First Order Stormtrooper sports car. Uh, This one will be showing up at the Mattel booth at the Comic-Con and is sure to look great alongside your Darth Vader Speedster and Mm -hmm. the Tusken Raider Scout. (laughs) I do like those cars. Um, They did
1: do a neat job on those.
2: They are really, really nice. There's the limited edition one, which I... Uh, they had at the Star Wars celebration Anaheim which was the r2kt the um the pink uh, r2 unit uh, which uh, is raising money for cancer awareness i don't know are, are you aware of, of r2kt that one no I haven't seen that Um, Basically, the KT stands for Katie. Um, It was a young girl that died of cancer, and she was a big Star Wars fan, Um, and they actually designed an R2 unit and named it after her. There's loads of patches out there as well with the R2 KT. Um, to raise money as well. Um, I noticed a lot of them at the Comic Con that I've just been to, and it's, it's quite an emotional story. And as I say, Mattel have brought out this limited edition R2KT sports car, which, as I say, all the money goes to cancer charities. <laughs> Star Wars prequel bashing has become something of uh, its own subgenre over the years. And uh, understandably so. <laughs> While the blame for the less than stellar series has laid at the feet of many a person or um, Gungan, um, one, ah. one actor who has stayed remarkably clean is Ewan McGregor. His portrayal of the young Obi Wan Kenobi is viewed by many as one of the highlights of the prequels. Uh, in a an interview with the UK's Daily Record newspaper McGregor isn't even coy when asked about returning to the role of Obi-Wan for the films that takes place between the two trilogies I'd be happy to do the story from episode, from episode 3 where I finish up and Alec Guinness starts. Statements like this could make movies happen. We already know that several characters within the Star Wars universe are going to get spin-off films and we have reason to believe that Obi one is one of the characters that's at least being considered for a film or perhaps a film series there was word that McGregor was already talking to Disney about bringing the character back if Ewan McGregor is willing to reprise the role why wouldn't you make movies about the missing years of this popular character the timing is perfect to make the movies that are set prior to A New Hope it's been 10 years since Revenge of the Sith uh, which makes everybody recognizably older without having to use special effects or makeup which pretty much makes sense in the same way that Han Solo and and Harrison Ford have aged prior to The Force Awakens McGregor is the perfect age to pick up the character several several years after the final scenes of Sith but several years prior to meeting a teenage Luke Skywalker if Obi-Wan movies do come to pass they'll join other spin-offs already planned like upcoming Rogue One as well as a film dedicated to Boba Fett and possibly one for Han Solo there's a distinct lack of Jedi in that mix so here's hoping McGregor and Disney make it happen.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I would like to see that one as well, because there was enough of, you know, okay, he says at the end of Revenge of the Sith that he'll keep an eye on Luke, but, okay, you know, there's still just a lot going on there that they could play with. Mm-hmm. And that, that would actually be interesting to see. And I don't understand why they... I mean, I know that, that Rogue One... Yes, they said that is not going to have anything about Jedi or anything, like, at least as, as primary topics on the movie. But, I mean, they didn't announce that all of them would be that way, did they? Because I don't recall seeing that, that they're going to say none of these anthology movies are going to be involving Jedi. I mean, they're, they're talking specifically about Rogue One as far as I know. I, I,
2: so, I can't see a, a Boba Fett movie having much to do with the Jedi,
1: though. No, no, but, you know, just because... Rogue One and Boba Fett wouldn't have anything to do with the Jedi doesn't mean that all of the anthology movies can't so because right now they've got four anthology movies scheduled that's what they're planning for right so yeah who knows just just as long as they don't do Jar Jar Binks I'm fine but the only way I'd like to see, see
2: him is in, in Carbonite that's
1: Oh, no, I I don't even want that, because that means that he still could be alive. I want to see his bones, man. I want to see his bones.
2: (laughs) Oh, dear.
1: What I really want to see is the original trilogy on Blu-ray. That's what I really want to see.
2: I can see this having a kind of a crossover as well, because you might get to see Leia growing up as well, because he's obviously going to have some contact with Organa, Um, so... You might get to see a little bit more of Alderaan, which would be really cool. Uh, that would be
1: cool. You know, how did she come to work with the rebels and that sort of thing? That could be interesting too, because she's from an early age. She's had that pretty much drummed into
2: her, isn't she? So. Um, yeah that would be quite interesting as well and especially at the moment where there are very strong female characters are starting to come through now in movies seeing how Leia became who she was would be really good. Talking to Leia I mean I I don't know if you've heard about it that um, Carrie Fisher's been in a little bit of bother. She's been saying a few things that she shouldn't have done she's been... uh,
1: This is nothing new (laughs) What did she say this time? well, she's been
2: letting a few cats out of the bags on the uh on the plot basically
1: you know honestly, they could tell me the whole story i don't care I'm going to be there opening weekend, possibly opening night. I have read a few things,
2: some of them are more rumors than others, but then when you see some of the clips that you've got from the the teasers already, it kind of falls into place you've got the the, the picture that's uh Circulating at the moment of uh, the crew in the Falcon, and you've got uh, Finn and uh, Ray in the Falcon with Han. Yeah, some of the storyline that I've heard, it, it, I think if if it is that story, will be quite good but all I'm going to say is that the, the whole story is based around a Jedi artifact that has been discovered
1: well I know that they, they showed uh, the lightsaber yeah, that in is, the teaser that is the artifact it's right there in the teaser so. yeah.
2: but it's, it's how it got into different people's hands and, and stuff it's 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 almost like a cat and mouse game trying to get to it, and it kind of falls into other people's hands, and uh, they have to work with, let's say, some shady people to try and make some deals and and things to try and get...
1: I mean, that part of it has been speculated for a while. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, even last year, they were talking about how the rumor, you know, rumor, so any of you spoilers people, just whatever, (laughs) tune out. That drives me nuts. Don't even get me started on that. Well, you probably heard my rant on that one Uh, on one of my other shows. I have. (laughs) That that just drives me nuts. You, You could tell me the entire ending of a movie. I don't care. I will go to see that movie, and I will enjoy it. But even last year, they were talking about how... The, the plot is trying they, they somehow get Luke's lightsaber and then they go to find him and that's kind of what the whole thing is about trying to find him mm. so I mean that all kind of goes in line with, with what you're saying yeah so who knows I don't care I'm, it's going to be awesome we could be completely wrong who knows so, so
2: from, from what I can work out is that somehow Finn got his hands on this that's why he's looking so scared because if he gets found with this piece he's going to be in serious trouble
1: could be because I mean you figure well both Luke's hand and his lightsaber they ended up on the surface of Bespin somewhere mm. so so who, who
2: knows where that would land uh, there's so many different systems <laughs> underneath Bespin so it's yeah. could have landed anywhere and that's the beauty of it it's so. a, you know, a blank page that could, to be written, you know?
1: Okay, well, we know that it's Luke's lightsaber. That's not up for debate because they showed it in the tra- mm-hmm. trailer teaser, I guess, really. Well, would that be a teaser? Or tra- I guess it would be a trailer. They showed it in the trailer, and you just have to go and look at the different kinds of lightsabers. Okay, that's Luke's from The Empire you, Strikes you know Back. what? which one it was. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so if... If by chance... Well, I guess Lando couldn't be in... Well, you never know. They might find him on Bespin again if they go back to investigate. I guess he wouldn't be in charge of it anymore because he joined the Rebellion, but Mm -hmm. you never know. I I can't imagine that they wouldn't have him in there.
2: I I get the impression that everybody pretty much evacuated Bespin, so it's probably run down and pretty derelict if they did go back there.
1: Could be, but on the other hand, since Lando ran the facility he would probably know about a lot of nooks and crannies and hidden spots that might be of benefit to do some searching. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> never know. Yeah. This That's- is just speculation, folks. I, don't, I know nothing.
2: <laughs> I think everybody out there's got their own twist on how they would like things to go. I mean, I know I did. Uh, there was a, a competition when I was a kid. And it was still being advertised as Revenge of the Jedi, mm-hmm. and basically you were asked to draw a storyboard from where Empire finished and do the first few scenes of the new film. And obviously, the best one would be selected. And there was oh, the the prizes. There was so many exclusive branded stuff, and that was it. I was, I just I want that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't win, but uh, wow. <laughs> but I can remember just sitting there drawing these these new characters and, <laughs> and
1: things. Yeah, that's all right. It's it's not going to be too much longer to wait. No, it's now it isn't. Uh, yeah. When you think about it, and now
2: you've got the the merchandise is just going to keep coming and coming. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: I mean I have seen well I haven't seen, but I've seen lists of the, well, the very vague lists of Hasbro merchandise. And there's a lot of it.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They plan on making money with this thing.
2: But the thing is, it's it's not that kind of stuff that you want to be buying. It's the stuff that's a little bit more different because there's going to be tons of that. And eventually, it's going to be in the bargain buckets <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> um It's a, a really exciting time. Now to be a Star Wars fan, that's that's for sure. Really, and,
1: and they've already started to do the planning for Episode Eight, which is going to be very cool. Ryan Johnson has already sent out tweets saying that uh, they've already decided they're going to be shooting it on thirty-five millimeter film. Really? Yep. they actually, he wanted to shoot it on seventy millimeter film. Oh yeah, that would have been amazing mm-hmm. to see. You know, could you imagine watching Star Wars Episode Eight on IMAX, both shot and displayed on 70mm film? 4K can't Uh even hold a candle to 70mm at this point. And that that would have just been amazing. But he said that uh, for various reasons, I'm I'm assuming cost and, you know, cost of the cameras and so forth. So they're going to be shooting on 35mm film, which is just fine by me.
2: It's a case of they want to keep them as close to the original way of doing things as possible. And that's that's one thing that JJ has brought to this franchise, is keeping it as close as possible. Mainly because he's like us, he's a a Mm fanboy and he knows what he wants to see. And
1: oh yeah
2: he, he knows what other people want to seek And he's doing his best <laughs> To try and fulfill that
1: And I wouldn't be surprised if he felt The way most of us felt Regarding the prequels too It's like really? Oh here's the set It's all green Yeah, It's like really? I, I, I'm so pumped for this Like I said the story is the only thing that can kill this movie for me At this point
2: The little bits and pieces that I've picked up I, I think the story is going to be quite good
1: Yeah, Yeah? Have you been following the comics? The new comics that have been coming out? Oh, I haven't, actually. I've got number one,
2: <laughs> um, which I had one look at and put it straight back in the plastic and...
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've, my local comic shop, they let me subscribe to whatever I want, and then once a month I go in and pick them up and pay for them and all that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've read... I've, I subscribe to the Darth Vaders and just the regular Star Wars, mm-hmm. and, I mean, these are the new canon, so as we get closer to the movie these comics are going to lead up to, to the story in some way
2: because they've all got their own spin-offs haven't they because there's a layer one there's a layer got one, one. yeah starwars.com have launched an episode 7 mini website which will grow as we get nearer to the release of the movie on the site at the moment you will see trailers a photo gallery and wallpapers for desktop and mobile devices I don't know if you've seen that, John.
1: No, I haven't yet. I'm going to have to check that out.
2: (laughs) You can find a link to the site in the show notes.
1: Blast off into the podosphere with TGP Nominal.
2: Earlier this year, fellow podcaster and friend of TGP Nominal, Phil Olsen, visited a nostalgic Aladdin's cave for video gamers. Here's Phil to tell
3: us more about it. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon in March. From the road, an unassuming white building in a quiet corner of Haslington, Lancashire could be mistaken for an industrial unit. But a steady stream of mainly men in their thirties to forties enter the premises, hand over their money, and come out hours later with a smile on their faces and a youthful spring in their step. As you move closer to the building, a strange but distinctly familiar sound is heard, and this is accompanied by bangs, groans, and exclamations coming from those inside. What is this place? A bearded fellow stands by the door welcoming those adventurous travellers from far and wide who have made the journey to visit his magical grotto. It's then that you recognise the sounds. The bearded wizard on the door is Andy, founder and owner of the Arcade Club, an Aladdin's cave of classic pinball and arcade machines. Andy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us today. No problems. I'm glad so many people have turned up for your event. It's amazing. It's been a huge hit, and uh, everyone of a certain age group the veteran gamers has been, uh, has been really enjoying themselves. Yeah, there's a lot of people around the age of 40, etc, so, but the good thing is they've brought all the children as well with merch, having a fantastic time. The kids are absolutely loving it. I mean, it's, it's amazing, and it's really odd to see 12-year-olds playing games like Defender. It is, yeah, we've,
4: we've had people bring their children before and uh, the joysticks and buttons are quite alien to them, they're used for touchscreen iPads nowadays and stuff, so it's quite interesting to see the dad get the best of the kids at the games, where obviously the kids are fantastic at the iPad stuff, where the dads aren't, so it's, it's, it's Great to see that. Especially the challenge in between the kids and the dads.
3: So, how long have you been going?
4: Uh, I've been going a couple of years now. Uh, this uh, venue's been. Uh about a year ago, so I'd say we did it. We opened up Arcade Club in one of our computer shops to see whether it would actually work and see if there was a call for this sort of thing. Um, we found out after about two months there was a call for it. People kept coming back, being in the friends, etc. We had beggars at cake coming back. People would travel from Leeds to come and play 30 arcade machines at a computer shop in the middle of housing, which was amazing. Um, and we decided to open the warehouse so where we store all the machines because we do a couple of the events, etc., up and down the country uh, and just get it in a state where it could actually
3: all be played and enjoyed. Well, we've got people here from all over the country and over from Ireland as well that come over specifically for this afternoon just morning so it's fantastic
4: yeah we've had a gentleman from Germany uh, that's our furthest uh, travel up to now coming for the end for the evening you think oh, that's amazing <laughs> somebody's prepared to travel that distance.
3: so how many machines have you got here?
4: there's approximately 110 working machines at the moment in here we have got uh, another 100 or so uh, stored away which we used for events Their are duplicate machines wow, okay. uh, for instance we have like two defenders uh, two robertrops etc uh, because we don't want to take anything away from our arcade club uh, if we do an event say, or a hire out, etc because we'd like to be able to take them all over the place we're in Nerg this year for instance um, we're doing uh, Play Blackpool uh, while well, James is here and uh you and know, we don't want to take anything away from our cable we want to, to, to share the enjoyment with everybody basically
3: so this is this really is a, a passion a hobby that's turned into a business for you yeah it's we're it's, on the business side of things
4: uh, it doesn't make a massive profit or anything but it makes enough to be able to sustain it and be able to repair the machines and maybe purchase some machine here and there as well people been think- Great, the forms have been great. They've given us uh, absolutely loads of spares and loads of valuable technical information to repair these machines. You know, and the community is fantastic.
3: Oh, brilliant! And you recently on BBC Two to the collectors? Yeah, it? that came out incredibly well. I was so
4: so worried about what the final edit was like. They were here for two days filming. They must have had enough to do, like uh, some sort of Lord of the Rings epic type uh, extended version of stuff. Uh, Used possibly seventy minutes of it in the entire episode. But yeah, it came out really really well. Everyone was very happy with it. I was happy with myself. I would have loved to have put loads of stuff that they filmed but unfortunately they've only got 17 minutes to play with
3: So, what's your favourite machine here first? My favourite machine is probably the Star
4: Wars cockpit. It has a, a very rare 25-inch amplifier monitor in it, uh, which is quite sought after in really the collecting collecting community. Uh, it's nice and solid, and it just plays beautifully. That's
3: that's actually my favourite game. Yeah, it is it's a absolutely And is there one machine that you'd love to get that you haven't found so far? Yes.
4: Uh, well, hopefully, I'm in the process of acquiring it, which is a game called I Robot uh, by David Fear. Uh, I think I've pronounced his name. Uh, he originally uh, did Tempest. I've always a filled vector game, um, and it's, it's it's bizarre. And when he came out of the time, it was a little bit too an advanced step for people, and the game flopped massively. Oh right! But it's absolutely fantastic game. That's one I'm trying to acquire for the arcade because it's it's a wonderful game.
3: Oh, fantastic! Well, thank you very much for having us no here today. It's been a huge success. And uh, the feedback we're getting on social media just from this afternoon is, if we come and do it again, we'll get we'll be getting even more people here. Fantastic. I said there'll be even more machines
4: and more things to do. <laughs> so everyone
3: will be happy. Fantastic, Andy. Thanks
4: a lot. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Thanks, Phil.
3: Pretty much all of the major classics are represented, all in their original carcasses and all in tip-top playable condition. Favourites such as Afterburner, Star Wars, Pac-Man, Asteroids, Paperboy, Defender, Thunderblood... Outrun and Gauntlet, just to name a few. There's also room with sofas and old generation consoles hooked up to TVs for some retro split-screen action. The £10 entry fee gets you unlimited plays on the over 100 cabinets, and for our group visit, there was also drinks to saxophone in.
5: Ask away. So, who are you and where are you from? Uh, my name is Robin. You may know me as um, Bongo the Seen from online xbox and places like that and i am a co-host on the overseas connection podcast part of the gates or g4te family so where have you come from today oh today uh we uh came from balamina in northern ireland so we got up very early took a flight to manchester hired a car and here we are in this wonderful place <laughs> hey you're helping me play here actually <laughs> it's working this is this you off uh, yeah. <laughs> but I'll go again. Um, so what do you think of the place? I think it's fantastic. It was my childhood. I I am now 46 year old, old, born in 69. And I remember in the little seaside town of Port Stewart on the north coast of Northern Ireland, little arcades when they first got in, Boot Hill and then Space Invaders. And I remember playing those. And this place... It's just, minipede, just all of these machines. Minipede from the wow. Yeah. So um, I remember spending the summer up in that coastal town, and every week the local arcade would get in one or two new machines, and you're always rushed down to see what, what they've got in, and pretty much every single one of these out, that are in here, from, from Millipede here to, to uh, Donkey Kong and, and Galaxians and the original Space Invaders... Uh, I I played them all and just loved them all. So this place is very already is very close to my uh, my heart.
3: Okay we're in front of the Metallica pinball machine which is one of the high score competitions today. And who've we got playing? John. Joey Wilson, uh, Birmingham. Birmingham. As you can tell. <laughs> so what do you think of this place so far?
5: I think it's pretty amazing. It's um it's a real hidden gem.
3: You're not doing too well on this, are
6: you? Oh, I'm not doing too well at all. No, I don't know about the high score, but if,
3: Phil, if there's any records for lowest score, then I think I've think i definitely got that one. No, I've had a go on this one already, and I think mine's the lowest score. <laughs> I don't know why they chose this particular pinball machine. Just to annoy me, purely just to annoy me. <laughs> well, I'll leave you to it. Have a good time. Right, thanks, Phil. Okay, found someone else who's
7: <laughs> willing to talk. What's your name? Where have you come from? Hey, it's Paul from Bolton. People might know me as PG Chit 77
3: So Bolton not too far away. How long's it take? Uh, to get in? Okay,
7: 25 minutes drive. Oh right, that's okay. Have you been here before then? No no no. no I've never place. heard it before, I've heard it on podcast. Oh, like. okay. So what do you think of the place? Oh it's yeah. great. Yeah. Really good.
3: And what have you been your favourite game so far?
7: Um uh, I've been playing a bit of pinball been on the uh, Salab- salamander, that's pretty good, I like
3: my uh, bullet shooters. Ah right, okay, Yeah, some, some really odd ones I haven't seen before. Yeah, yeah, same here. But, uh, yeah. No, have a great day. Cheers, thanks. I'll just interrupt these two guys. Hi guys, how you doing? Hello! Who
6: do we have? Um, you have Jesus, but some people call me Mike Chin. Um, but I, I tend to look like Jesus these days, to be honest. And Rob, also known as Verbal Rob. So, what are you playing at the moment? We're playing uh, a game that I paid forty pounds for—forty pounds sterling—when um, I was a young boy. I remember playing this, buying this game and thinking, "Oh, I'm going to play this." I read the manual on the way home with my mom on the bus. It's Smash TV. Smash TV. Fantastic. The problem with it now is. You've only got like eight axes to... axes to shoot, and it's very difficult. It's not like a normal twin-stick shooter where you've you got all different... You've got like a good range of shooting, but you just have like right, left, up, down, and diagonals, and that's it. So diagonals. it's very difficult. Diagonals. When it works. When it works. It's very tough. Uh-oh.
3: What are you thinking of uh, the arcade club, then?
6: It's good. But, like, I think I'm 29, so for me, arcade machines and arcade places were a place where drug dealers used to hang out so it sort of reminds me of that, to be honest um, uh, but like, really, like, the, I, I sort of missed out on the arcade world so for me, it's quite nice to see what it was actually probably like um, but then I realised that all these games are, are terribly hard so I, 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 I think, oh, this is like a nice game to play and then I realise, oh my god, it's so difficult I'm so glad that we have easy games for old idiots like me but it's good. It's good, though. It's really nice place. I think they've got it sorted out. I just stepped on a mine when all the enemies were dead. So that's how smart I am. Uh, but no, I think I think they've done a really good job. Uh, it's a good business model. It's a, they seem pretty friendly. They've put on food for us. Um, and we were quite shocked. Everybody was saying, how much do I have to pay for a bit of food? And it's all there for us. They put up a little sign. They know exactly who we are. They joined us on Facebook. So they're really accommodating. And as you can probably hear in the background... Everybody seems to be enjoying themselves. What do you think Rob, what do you think?
7: It's pretty sweet.
6: Although, yeah, yeah I was going to say it takes me back, but these are actually a bit before my time.
3: Are you saying that we're all
6: old kids? Yeah. 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 No, no. And the games that you played were awful. Yeah, I know. Although, <laughs> although it was kind of strange Look. coming in here to find a, tw- a 12-year-old playing Defender. Yeah, that's weird. And like the twelve-year-olds, I was speaking to some of the kids about, oh, you know, what do you think of these games now? He says, oh, thank God, I don't. I wasn't brought up in this time because because they say, oh, it's, it's quite, it's quite interesting. No, it wasn't interesting for the people growing up. But this is it. This was gaming. That was it. But you can sort of see like what you don't get now, I suppose, is an atmosphere when you play a game. You just it's just a box in your, you know, in your like game man cave or whatever. But here it's an atmosphere, it's, there's a sort of community. I suppose that's that's what's missing. But yeah, it's good. It's good to come down and uh, check it out. i you go. Go on. Yeah, we're again. not doing very well. No. Sorry. But luckily, we have infinite lives.
3: <laughs> I'm here with an organised meetup of mature video gamers and arcade enthusiasts community is called the veteran gamers formed around the weekly podcast of the same name
7: it's true from veteran gamers it's been a fantastic day yeah yeah, i think it's been really good what 46 people i weren't expecting that i'm gonna say i thought 30-ish if we were lucky but wow i'm just i'm i'm kind of humbled as how far people have traveled to get here it's just crazy you know we've got someone who's flown over from ireland Got well, someone who's travelled 246 miles to be here today, you know. So driving for a long time. It's just I'm just so cool. I'm just like in awe of all everyone who's coming and to. And the arcade clubs been fantastic. Been yeah, they've been home. really, really accommodating. You know, they've sorted us out snacks and everything and drinks and uh, yeah, tons and tons of great arcade cabinets to play. You know, from yesterday. What I think's been particularly cool is all the kids that have come have really enjoyed playing on these old machines. You know, and getting into it. You know, for stuff that they've maybe never ever seen before so that's kind of cool I mean that's was really really great and the Street Fighter tournament went really well yeah brilliant I mean it took way longer than I thought it was going to take I mean we've been playing what two and a half hours I guess it's taken all together but to, uh, well, we got a winner Coop was a winner oh yeah he kicks some ass uh, it's fair to say but uh, yeah it's very very good so where can listeners find out more about Patrick Games Uh they can either find out about us at uh, veterangamers.co.uk or they can follow us on Twitter at veterangamersuk or Facebook. On Facebook Veteran Gamers or Veteran Gamers UK on YouTube. YouTube. And Twitch. we've got Twitch channel Veteran Gamers UK. We also have uh, a, swarm, new a swarm of pigeons we do. Uh, that send out messages to people. And in addition, <laughs> we've even got a Google Play app which yeah. IP to oh, yeah. developed yeah got a Google Play yeah so you can uh, download the Google Play app and that'll give you all the links to everything we do including the podcast it's the £99 website. on the Google. it is £99 <laughs> so, yeah, you've make money out of this stuff there is there is there's is a lot of places you can find us so yeah okay cheers guys hopefully um, the success of this we'll see another one yeah, that yeah that thanks much. Phil I mean thank you for coming Phil and you know just that a massive is. thanks to everybody else who's come today our K Club and everybody who supported us today it is travel too just to hear his annoying voice exactly exactly well, and, we, and we do you know his voice I've, a, I've only played one video game know, today yeah, which is track and field ever. that's track the only thing I've played it, yeah.
6: yeah but at least yeah. you bought that nice leather jacket i'm <laughs> worried
3: about
7: getting too warm. Yeah. Yeah. no it's fine
3: Only cool. lives oh, around the back anyway so
7: yeah I'm only half an hour I'll not see like see some you. of the people who have to travel like you know for three or four hours to get here today cheers guys thank you yeah thanks, Phil
3: And so, with a sad heart, after four hours of revisiting my misspelt childhood, with memories of hours lost and credits spent, it's time for me to make my way home. My six-hour round trip pales into insignificance compared to some of the journeys undertaken, and every one of the visitors that day left with a huge smile on their faces. More information about the Arcade Club can be found on their website at arcade-club.com and the Veteran Gamers podcast can be listened to on iTunes and by going to veterangamers.co.uk. This has been Phil Olsen. So that was Phil Olsen at
2: the Arcade Club. Uh, what did you make of that, John?
1: Oh, my childhood returns.
2: <laughs> I've got so many memories of, of being oh. in, in arcades. Mainly, we have a, a lot of, or well, we had a lot of arcades uh, on the seafronts at Seaside um, at Resorts here. here. And uh, that was mainly the only time I, I visited arcades, when we were on, on holiday or, or vacation. And my mum, she loved the music from OutRun. Yes. <laughs> and she used to give me piles of coins so that I could play the game, so that she could hear the music. <laughs> So I had to get pretty good at it.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolute ocean breeze. Um, uh, what was it? Um, something Splash, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, that was awesome music from, from that video game and The strange thing is um, the ZX Spectrum um, wasn't known for its graphics or its sound capabilities being as it was only 48k at the time and it came with an audio cassette of the music from the arcade machine (laughs) so that when you played the game you could listen to the actual music (laughs) which I thought was a nice touch. (laughs) (laughs) I think they also did the same with Afterburner.
1: (laughs) Oh wow. Wow
2: which is an awesome soundtrack
1: Uh, Afterburner, that wasn't too bad I think uh, Space Harrier is one that i remember Ah. more than Afterburner though
2: Space Harrier, I love Space (laughs) Harrier
1: (laughs) yeah, dude, so many quarters were spent (laughs) they gave their lives to a noble cause (laughs) the other one I
2: used to like a lot was Chase HQ I used to love Chase HQ
1: Oh, I don't um, remember that
2: one. It was um, kind of like a Starsky and Hutch type thing where you've got somebody at, at the police department saying, oh, you're looking for this kind of car, it's a sedan or whatever, Then you have to chase the car, and then the little arrow points to where the car is, and you have to try and bump it off the road, and then arrest the bad guys. Hey! <laughs> <laughs>
1: I had to
0: pull
1: it up on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's some good stuff.
2: Um, what was the other one? I used to play so many games though. I used to play oh, yeah. games like uh, oh, Bubble Bubble. Oh my
1: god, yes! And then the full. Oh, up. my wife and I put hours into that one.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's too many classics. I mean, I, obviously when when I was quite young, most of my money went into Pac-Man but um.
1: <laughs> oh, there's, This is the one I was thinking of Yep, that's it
2: There
1: you go <laughs> oh, It's nice to see them coming back too We actually, it's about 45 minutes from here, I mean not that that really means anything since 45 minutes in the US isn't necessarily the same distance as 45 minutes in the UK <laughs> but uh, it, it's a you know free, open play all the games you want uh, you don't have to feed it quarters. I guess they accept donations or something. Mm-hmm. And every year at PAX East, one of the big rooms, it just turns into one giant free arcade. And it, it's just, it's so awesome.
2: I just thought of another one I used to play around about the same sort of time as um, as Pac-Man. And maybe a little bit later, um, Dig Dug.
1: Oh my God, yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> So much money on that one. I was actually kind of surprised in that article. They mentioned how difficult iRobot was. I used to play the crap out of that game. <laughs> and, and then I noticed that it did just kind of disappear. And I was when, always... I'd look for it every now and then. Like, whatever happened to iRobot? And I just... I didn't realize that it did so poorly.
2: Yeah, strange, isn't it?
1: Oh, I spent a lot of money on that one. <laughs>
2: Oh man, I've got some of the reproductions that they they did for the uh, the, the older games machines like the PS2 and things like that. And uh, I used to collect all the retro uh, collections, the Capcom ones and the yep. <laughs> the Activision and the <laughs> and, and stuff like that. the well, that's more less uh, arcade though. That's that's just going back to the. The Atari 2 thousand six hundred but um,
1: <laughs> back when the art cover looked absolutely nothing like the game yeah <laughs> I, I, one thing I used to like
2: about those though, especially on the Activision games is that you um, if you did well you could you know, if you could take a photograph of the of the screen uh-huh. and send it in, you used to get patch badges and stuff
1: yep which, Activision was just amazing that it was like every game that they released was just. It looked good considering the, the resolution of the day. Mm-hmm. It, it, it always looked good. It, they always played well. Activision just completely dominated the 2600 era.
2: Yeah, uh, I think uh, out of the guys that I used to play games with, um, it's it probably River Raid. Yes. <laughs>
1: That's one and um, oh, it's not Jump Man. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, I'm embarrassed now. Pitfall? Pitfall. That's the one. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, that that was a good one. That then they? They were going to turn that into a movie, weren't they?
1: It should be one of the dumbest things ever. But yeah, I heard <laughs> about that too. Uh, I hope that kind of fell by the wayside. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. We don't need it. How how do you do that? A movie of swinging over water, jumping on crocodiles' heads, and running under caves to get to. And, and caves are shortcuts in the game. It's like you, you, no,
2: no movie. No, 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 no. Don't do that. It's it's kind of Indiana Jones, isn't it? Really?
1: Yeah, really. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, we have Raiders of the Lost Ark, so we don't need a pitfall movie. <laughs>
6: This is Arnold J Rimmer from Red Dwarf. You're listening to TGP Nominal. She's alive.
5: Alive. She is
1: so next we actually have a uh, I almost said guest host. That's not right. My brain's not working. Help me here. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, she um, was a guest. <laughs> a guest. That's the guest. Oh my god, I could not remember the word guest. I just... I give up. I'm done. Bye. (laughs) We're done. (laughs) No, anyway. (laughs) I haven't had enough Mountain Dew. That's the problem. (laughs) But, uh... She runs, and yes, she, female scientists, imagine that, they are out there. As I say, that dripped heavily with sarcasm, um, and you'll understand why in the show. But uh, she actually has a YouTube channel called The Stimulus. Her name is Stephanie Evans, and she is a genuine rocket scientist, you know, aerospace engineer, that sort of thing. Her show I can associate with so well because she is constantly trying to be silly. She's got very strong Star Wars nerd credentials. Uh, she just likes to have fun. She doesn't mind poking fun at herself, any of that. But she'll take whatever the topic, you know, whatever science topic of the week, and just talk about it. So, the, you know, her videos are short, about 10 minutes long. But uh, we started chatting on YouTube, and we realized that we're both demented, which is really awesome. So I just said, you know, well, you know, being a woman in science has its own challenges. And of course, being into Star Wars and, and space and all of that, that makes her a natural fit for the show as well. So. Threw at her uh, how would you like to have an interview she understandably listened to a couple of our shows first to determine you know make sure we were on the level and uh, so she agreed to come on now I will give you fair warning this was a really, really rushed thing she, she was really busy at work over the past few weeks Plus she's taking some time off So she just kind of co- contacted me the day of And was like, uh, John, can we get this done tonight? I really want to do this, but this is about the only time I have it, It's really rushed because literally We conducted this while she was on her way from work To get some dinner And on the way back because something was happening at work And everybody had to be there So she was literally driving to get her dinner and back when we were doing this. So it's really rushed. Uh, She makes references to things that she and I have talked about. Uh, on twitter separately i mean i can try to cover some of that a little bit later but it's a really rushed interview but it was a lot of fun gave her perspective on what it's like being a woman in science which apparently is not very easy unfortunately but it was a really fun interview i had a lot of fun with it so uh with that i guess we might as well just go to well i guess part one and with me now i have the pleasure of talking to stephanie evans a uh, genuine rocket scientist. I have no idea why I said it that way, but this is me we're talking about here. And she is the host of Twistem, which is uh, YouTube. And, uh, well, Stephanie, glad you can give me some of your time.
8: Uh, Thank you so much for having me, John. I really appreciate it.
1: So, just to start, what is, for for all of our listeners, what is Twistem?
8: Um, TWISTM is an acronym. It stands for This Week in STEM. It's one of the shows I do on my YouTube channel, The Stimulus. Basically, I just take the latest and greatest and really cool STEM, STEM-related news stories throughout the week. Um, STEM is also an acronym. Uh, it stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. And I just go and try and find the coolest stories that I can throughout the week and break them down into very digestible um, little segments and just kind of keep the world informed about what the coolest stuff is out there currently.
1: Uh, a lot of the... Well, it's, you, you just are no holes barred You don't mind being silly. You don't mind being goofy. You don't mind, mind even you know, poking fun at yourself at times. Uh, you love oh, your Star not. Wars yeah. references.
8: Very much so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> very, very much. So, yes, your, your geek credentials are quite secure. Um, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so, uh, what, what, uh, what is your background? I mean, was I accurate in saying that you are a genuine rocket scientist?
8: <laughs> well, yeah, I like to say ironically that I paid $100,000 and spent four years of my life so that I can say it ironically. Uh, my degree is in aerospace engineering, yes, and I did do a small satellite design in college. I went to school at Missouri S&T out in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. And, yeah, <laughs> it's it's been awesome, and I love being able to say that. It's very, you know, gratifying.
1: There you go. <laughs> they know about rockets in Missouri? Really?
8: Oh, yeah well you know we can't launch them from there but you know that's about it that's that's about all we had but yeah it was in a very small town and the student population probably made up for half the town's population it was fantastic <laughs> <laughs>
1: that, that's okay i'm i mean i'm my hometown is scranton which nobody heard of until the office so
8: oh yeah yeah you get it yeah the i, I little get little it cornfield yeah, well, you know, Scranton is
1: not necessarily in the middle of a cornfield, but it is pretty much not really well-known.
8: Ah, uh, see, yeah. I, yeah, I grew up in a place where it was so flat, you could roll a quarter from one side of the town to the other. It was, yeah, <laughs> not very exciting. Well,
1: in in <laughs> fairness, I don't live that far away from Lancaster now, so I've got a lot of Amish in the area, too.
8: Oh, okay. So Interesting.
1: I, I can associate with all of that. Hmm. <laughs> it's just the way it goes. But, uh, oh, okay, yeah. with, with Twistem, one of the things that... I don't even remember how I saw it. I just... Saw it somehow. I saw a reference of it on YouTube. I was like, "What is this all about?" And I went to check it out, and I was like, "Oh my god, this this woman is just as crazy as I am. This is awesome!" And
8: <laughs> absolutely, you got to have some humor. I think it makes it a lot more relatable if you if you add a couple jokes here and there, and even though they are incredibly cheesy, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but cheesy is good, as far as I'm concerned, you know.
8: Oh, yeah, it's my shtick. Yeah, that's
1: that's how I go. Well, I mean, and that also helped to set it apart from other, you know, there are a lot of other science and physics and so forth. Or the, well, most of them are kind of presented just straight on. These are the facts, you know, that that sort of thing. And yours was actually like, hey, you know, I'm here having fun. And that just kind of set I mean, it apart.
8: Oh, yeah, well, it's, it's really easy to have fun when, you know, I just, I absolutely... Love what I'm talking about. You know, it's not just me getting up and reciting lines. I enjoy doing the research, even though it keeps me up till all hours of the night. And I (laughs) enjoy talking about it, which is why I talk a mile a minute during the actual videos. And, yeah, it's it's stuff I'm really passionate about. So it's really fun to do that. And, you know, the humor, I think sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I've been told that people love the jokes, and I've also been told that I'm really annoying. So, you know.
1: (laughs) Well, if you're really annoying, then why are they watching?
8: You can't win it all. Well, no,
1: no, you can't please everybody.
8: Oh, yeah, and I considered my first hater like a life achievement unlocked or something. I was just like, hey, <laughs> now I've really made it. I have haters. Great.
1: Did you have any concerns when you started it? I mean, God forbid, a woman in science. Oh my God, you have woman parts. You can't be a scientist. You know, that sort of thing. Did you have any concerns about that when you started it up?
8: Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it was definitely a concern. You know, I grew up in a part of the country where, you know, there sexism exists. And, yes, sometimes it's in the form of jokes and, oh, you know, Stephanie, you know, the men are talking, or why don't you go make me a sandwich or something? And, you know, you it's something you kind of come to not necessarily accept, but you know that it's going to be something you have to deal with. So, yeah, it was definitely a fear. To be honest, my more prominent fear, I would say, was that I would get something wrong. And so I do just scad the research every week to make sure that, you know, I get everything right because that's the thing. You know, if I get something wrong when I'm talking about it, it's not going to be oh, you know, she accidentally screwed up. It's going to be she's a woman and she screwed up. And I think it's just the added pressure to get everything correct and be perfect. I, I feel that is the bigger thing I struggle with from week to week. But, you know, like I said, it's, it's a lot of fun and typically I just stress for like the first 24 hours after a video goes out and generally the feedback's good. So, I don't think I've made a misstep yet, Yet, operative word. <laughs>
1: well, you know, even at that, it makes for some great blooper stuff.
8: Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you know, when you, when you can't pronounce the simplest words in the world, or when you say <laughs> for mock instead of mock for, and you're internally cringing because you can hear your aerodynamics professor screaming for no reason. Yeah, it's just, ugh.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I do two podcasts, and there are just some times where it's like, the brain is going 100 miles an hour, the uh, mouth is going 40 miles an hour, And you just end up going... Exactly,
8: yeah.
1: I completely understand that. Oh, and by the way, I absolutely love your sister, because just having the where-for-all for for not doing it just once but twice, but just giving a hearty belch while recording... (laughs)
8: Yeah, oh, uh, yeah, you, you got to. I mean, it's just you know that's just you can't help it, and it makes for a really good blooper. I'm, I'm so feminine. My mother cringes every time she, you know, oh, you burped that camera again. Yeah, but I didn't put it in the main video, so maybe everybody didn't see it. No, I, I'm, I'm kidding. No, my mom's great. She's all of my family has been really supportive, which is something you're kind of afraid of when yeah. you. uh start something like this because it's hard to tell people oh yeah i i'm doing youtube now i do stuff on the internet <laughs> <laughs> oh so you're getting paid for it no not really well, it's just something i like <laughs> you know i enjoy doing it but it's, it's like i said it's worth it but they've been totally supportive and my family's just family and friends and even coworkers have just been great about it but it's, it's a lot of fun
1: it is fun especially when you get that But all you need is that one person just come back and say oh my god i love your show And that just makes it worth it.
8: Oh, gosh, I turn into a... Yeah, every time somebody tells me that, I turn into, like, a little ball of, like, sludge. I'm just like, oh, well, you know, thank you. You (laughs) just chucked. You know, I just want to crawl into the desk and hide from embarrassment. But, yeah, feedback like that means a lot, especially if it comes from somebody that's like, hey, I'm watching this with my young daughter and stuff like that, because that was the whole reason I started the stimulus was because when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in the middle of a cornfield like we were talking about, and I had no visible female role models, you know, especially not for engineering. You know, I just, I heard of Marie Curie. Great. Mm -hmm. One woman that's been dead for a really long time. Awesome. (laughs) But, you know, and I just didn't have that kind of visible female role model. So the whole thing was, you know, I was like, well, I'm not a Ph.D. and I'm not a renowned, you know, scientist or anything like that. But it would be really nice to be able to say, hey, I'm a female engineer. This is what I do. This is what it looks like. And just kind of have a visible female scientist engineer role model or just somebody visible. That was the whole goal behind starting the stimulus. And within the first couple of months, I was getting, you know, people saying, hey, I'm watching this with my granddaughter, or with my son, and I – keep a little screen cap of messages like that. And so when I'm having the rough night where it's 4.30 in the morning and my internet isn't working, I whip that file out. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's worth it. Totally worth it.
1: There you go. Now that worked. And, I mean, I'm not going to deny that that I've got two daughters, and we, we kind of were trying to push them, or at least make them feel comfortable with doing things science-related and so forth, and they're computer geeks just like their father. So oh, cool. know, That that's all good. We have no problems with that. So, yeah, we, we, you know we kind of were hoping to push them a bit more towards a science goal but you know if that's not what they want to do then that's not what they want to do that's part of what i wanted to talk to you about just to get that female Mm -hmm. perspective that you know my wife and i are very much we don't care what you do as long as you're passionate about it you do well in it just do what you want to do we don't care if it's science related great if it's not science related okay it's amazing even nowadays how many people out there are just like no you belong in the kitchen My brain kind of acts like... I don't know if you ever watched the original Star Trek series, but... Oh, yeah. Okay, so then... I'm
8: I'm a Trekkie Star Wars screen. You know, one of those weird (laughs) ones. There
1: you go. So then, so am I. Yeah. So you remember the whole thing with Nomad, and he ended up being a a, a spaceship that kind of short-circuited, and that's kind of how Mm. I get when I see these guys talking about how women can't be scientists, because my brain just kind of says...
0: Error. Error.
1: It just doesn't work. How much of an impact has that really been on you. you, You had that instance the other day where somebody made a comment about your clothing, which to me was just like, what, really?
8: Sexism is something that you're going to deal with, and it doesn't make it right. It's just something that you have to be prepared to deal with. You know, I, I took great offense to the comment the other day about, you know, my shirt. You know, it's just been ingrained by society, so they don't understand what they're saying as being hurtful or offensive, and he didn't understand that. So for the most part, I always try to kind of take a breath and see if I can make it into a teachable moment that, hey, that's really not an appropriate thing to say to somebody, and what I'm wearing does not impact what, you know, I how effective I am at my job. And that's the tough part. Then you have, you know, the, the Tim Hunt comments and stuff like that. And that's obviously an ingrained perspective. And I won't even go into that rabbit hole because I just, no. uh, but, yeah, I know, you know. Yeah, I,
1: I understand that. But just, just for the listeners who might not be aware, he, he's a, a British scientist, Nobel Prize winner. And uh, at yeah. a conference in South Korea, he came out and actually said, uh, let me tell you about my trouble with girls. You fall in love with them, they fall in love with you, and when you criticize them, they cry. Uh, and the
8: biggest problem ugh. I have with the defenders, yeah, on, on, uh, sexism aside, the biggest problem I have with the defenders is people coming out and saying, "You oh, he shouldn't have lost his job, and people attacked him. And okay, well, here's the deal. If you are a notable scientist with that much sway in the community, your comments do not come without consequence. You know, freedom of speech is irrelevant here, and I—it right. I, really annoys me when people, oh, freedom of speech. No, that's not what freedom of speech means. And yeah, First
1: Amendment in no apply. way ties
8: in here. No, it—it means he can't get in prison for his comments about you know about the fact that he's a misogynist. But that's just—you know—for me, it was—it was disappointing to see that mindset. But at the same time, I got one heck of a silver lining from the distractingly sexy movement. That was incredible. That to was see fantastic. That many, Female scientists, yeah, come together and really show off. You know, look, we're women and them, and we are being awesome. And this is what we do day to day. And it was really in- just inspiring. And I was really honored to be included among them. But just yeah, it was. I know it you, was you a were really the top one line. in that BBC article. Oh yeah, that was that was surreal. <laughs> 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 well, the best part is nobody knew it was me because I was in a full-on bunny suit. And I actually had one of my coworkers the night before who was flipping through Yahoo, and he sat next to me for three years, said hi to me every morning, and he just flipped right by it, I had no <laughs> idea it was me until the following morning. And yeah, it was that was an interesting one.
1: Oh, really, and really to really anyone weird. listening, we're not talking bunny suit as in like Playboy bunny suit, okay? We're talking oh, no, like no, no, no. dry, clean room well, where the only thing that you can see are your eyes.
8: Yeah, eyes and eyebrows. Yeah, that you must have been fun. Dust and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was it was a blast, especially at that point because you know, I I kind of had hoped though so, that the first time I if I ever did wind up on the BBC or Yahoo that it would not be the picture where I had not <laughs> slept for at least 30 hours or showered for 30 hours because that was several all-nighters strung together back to back when that picture was taken I was like, "Oh, no. Well, maybe it's a good thing nobody can recognize me. Just roll with it."
1: There you go. I'm gonna have to try to figure out some kind of Monty Python thing. You know, it is the rabbit, but uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. told you, told you, I'm just about as crazy as you, and I love it. So
8: <laughs> well, you know, as crazy people, we're going we're gonna to rule the world one day. It'll happen.
1: Awesome. What can we do? I mean, like I said, I've, I've, I've taught my daughters, you do what you want. If you want to go into science, we 100% support you. But then there are idiots out there. I had one guy tell me directly, uh, it's not institutional discrimination and sexism that's underlying this. It's differences between the sexes. It's like, what? Yeah. What? What? How? And I even mentioned, okay, let's talk about Ada Lovelace, Marie Curie, Margaret Hamilton, and he actually came back and said, oh, the outliers.
8: What? You can't fix society all at once, and that's been something that's been really hard for me to accept, is you can't fix stupid all the time. Sometimes you just have to change the small part of the universe that you can control, and I think you know, by encouraging your daughters, you're doing a very, a very good job. For me, the way my parents always approached it was, you can do anything that you want, be the best at it, and then they just made the resources available. You know, they didn't get mad when I blew up a breaker at the house because I was 10 years old and wanted to know what happened when I touched white and green wires together. <laughs> it was, you know, fun fact, it's a fireworks show that could be seen from outside the house. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've done
8: it. You know, it just. That that kind of tinkering for me was encouraged, you know, the tinkering, the experimentation, you know, okay, what happens if I do this and what's the outcome and well, what do you think's gonna happen? That kind of experimentation was always encouraged by my parents and they made the resources available. I was a bookworm, I had every book that I could possibly want and I was always that kid in class that got in trouble for reading when she wasn't supposed to, you know, hiding in the desk and having the desk cracked open just enough <laughs> so I could see the words and but that kind of encouragement I think was very integral to my career path, and aerospace has always been a huge part of my life. My dad has a huge interest in aviation. He wanted to be in the Air Force, um, but he's profoundly deaf, so that didn't work out. But, you know, I grew up right next to an Air Force base, so every time the planes went over, it was like, oh, let's go outside and let's look, and, you know, the Thunderbirds would fly right over my backyard, and we'd go and go out and look, oh, yeah, like, it's nice, when you can sit in your pool on a summer day, and they'll bank out, and you can see the cockpit with the pilot sitting in it, oh, yeah, that's,
1: oh, See, th- yeah. th- there's I, another I one that we've got in common because my house uh, used to be directly in line with the main runway uh, for the Scranton-Booksbury International Airport. And when they'd have their air shows, they would mm-hmm. always come right over my house for landing or uh, when they're actually like doing just a big strafing run right across the runway during the show itself. So I'd have F-16s oh, yeah. buzzing over my house and F-14s. And it was just like, who needs to go to the airport? This is awesome.
8: Oh yeah, it was amazing. We'd get, you know, one year we got VIP passes to the air show, and I could have hit the Blue Angels with a baseball if I had one. It was amazing. But yeah, I had always had that kind of influence, and for me, I think um, the the space part of it really kind of took over because I've always had like this need to explore. You know, go get dirty, go out and explore, and space is. You know, the final frontier, to not be cliche, but to kind of be cliche, it is the final frontier. And so that, for me, is just, it's a challenge that I've always just kind of really wanted to be a part of. So space has always been my passion for as long as I can remember. I mean, you know, I remember being four years old. I'm going to be an astronaut, nurse, doctor, and artist. Well, three of those things dropped off, and astronaut (laughs) kind of stuck around.
1: (laughs) Well, no, I mean, even my wife could tell you that we'd go out just to take the trash out at night. And I'd look up, Mm -hmm. and it would be a gorgeous, clear night. And I would actually lament that, you know what? The one regret that I'll probably have in life is that I will never escape this atmosphere.
8: I've always wanted to break it. I remember, you know, watching, reading books about the moon landing and asking my parents, you know, when, when's the next moon landing? And, well, we don't go there anymore. Well, why not? And nobody ever had a good answer for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'd watch the shuttle launches, which were amazing. And then I just remember feeling this profound sadness when the shuttle program was shut down. I,
0: I, yes, I me too. I
8: yeah, I cried on the last shuttle launch and the last shuttle landing. I was in tears because for me, it represented the end of an era. The shuttle the shuttle era was all that I had ever known. And at that point, there was no real, I mean, SpaceX was, you know, was coming around, but there was no real plan to go anywhere else. Yep. And for me, that was just, that was like a nail in the heart. I just, I was devastated. And... You know, it's, it, I feel like now we're on the cusp of the next great space age. I really do. And for me, just I, I just want to be a part of it in any way I can. You know, everybody talks about, oh, you know, this is never going to get off the ground, and that's never going to get off the ground. And I'm sure now everybody's talking about the latest issues SpaceX had with the CRS-7 launch. But, yeah, there is no manual for space flight. There is. It's. You know, there is, well, we, we can't go, oh, well, this person did this, so we're going to do this. No, there is no manual. We are literally going where no one has gone before. Mm. I know, I'm, I'm just on a roll right now with Star Trek. Right. but <laughs> I can't help it. You're just making right? up for all
1: your Star Wars references in your show.
8: I know. Dang it. I, I got through one without making a Star Wars reference. I was I really proud of myself. I
1: don't well I don't know, it seems kind of odd if you don't have a Star Wars reference in there. It's almost obligatory at this point.
8: I know. It was really weird, but then I totally made up for it this week by having like three, so it averages out, you know.
1: <laughs> That's all good. No, I'm totally with you on the space shuttle. Another friend of mine who is also a a you know, rocket scientist and all that. He was like, oh, that thing is so expensive to run. I'm just really glad it's going away. And it's like, yeah, I get that,
8: but we've got nothing in its place. Yeah, it was it was tough. And for me, it was it was also kind of cool, though, because one of the astronauts that went up, uh, Dr. Sandra Magnus, who was on uh, the final shuttle mission, mm-hmm. she went to my college. I've had the privilege to listen to her speak. She spoke at my uh, commencement address. She also spoke to my satellite nice. team. Just Oh, gosh, she's just got... Amazing stories, and it was really kind of cool. And I've got an autographed picture from her, and she's she's amazing. And it was just for me to watch that happen; it was it was kind of special. So it was just like, oh, that's really cool.
1: That but, that's very cool. Yeah. I, I don't know if you listen, I know you said that you listened to a few of these, uh, a few of our uh, TGP nominals before you you agreed to this. Uh, not that I blame you, because just to see what kind of a, a crazy guy I am. But um, mm-hmm. we actually, I don't know if you listened that we actually had the pleasure of talking to Richard Garriott about his time on the International Space Station, which, for me, was okay. also a double whammy, because he's the guy who created the Ultima video game series, which I grew up with, so I, I was just...
8: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did listen to that one,
1: yeah. Yeah, so I, I told him flat out, look, I'm trying to control myself for not squeeing like a schoolgirl, uh, because it was just so <laughs> awesome talking to him. And some of the stories he had about the ISS were just funny as hell. I loved it. It was like the, the, the best hour-and-a-half uh, interview i would ever done of course not that i've done many hour and a half interviews but uh, you know what i mean
8: Mm -hmm. oh yeah i totally get it
2: so that was a a really interesting conversation there because like you say it is difficult for a a woman to get into what is i I, I don't like to say a male dominated uh, line of work but it kind of is
1: it is it is
2: um but it's the same in, in any form of work that is male-dominated. Like, it's it's extremely different, difficult for female mechanics. But there are a lot of them out there, and they're extremely good at what they do.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and, a, a, and a lot of them feel that they have to do more than their male counterparts to be accepted, um, which is wrong. Um,
0: very
1: what wrong. Is? And I, I just... I. I, I cannot understand the whole thought process behind people who, who truly think that, oh, they have woman bits, they're inferior, they shouldn't be doing this. I, I don't get that. I absolutely don't get that.
2: The way, the way I look at it is, if, if someone is more capable of doing the job than me, doesn't matter who you are, fair play to them, I say. Um, oh,
1: absolutely. And you know, like I said, like, like I said in that one, um, the fact that I understand all of those space topics, I get it. I understand how they all relate to each other. But you put a formula in front of me and I'm done. I'm gone. I can't process it. <laughs> and yet She's just like, oh, hey, I love that stuff. So then why shouldn't she be allowed to do that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. You know, if I can be allowed to do it, if I really wanted to, and I don't know as much as she does, why can't she do it? And then, even more than that, why should she get flack if she does do it? I don't. I, I just don't get that.
2: Yeah, it's it's really, really strange.
1: One thing I do want to say about the interview: um, we didn't discuss where she works because yeah, she's kind of like me, I guess. You know, when when you work for certain government institutions, you just don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. So, which is fine. And uh, the other thing that that I wanted to reference that probably no one would understand, is she mentioned about uh, a, a clothing issue uh, the previous week. Yes. Which, just kind of, just to highlight the whole thing, it was just, she went in to work with, it wasn't even really a low-cut shirt or anything. It was lower than a woman with a blouse would have, mm-hmm. but it really wasn't showing anything, and yet, a co-worker of hers busted her chops about showing too much cleavage. And, and really, there it wasn't low enough to show any. But yet, that's the kind of crap she has to deal with. But, yeah, I know. It's just like, how do you? What? It, huh?
2: But that's just petty. It is. Um, yeah, there's there's no other words to to say apart from from that really.
1: And what really boggles me is that there are people who are now they are now actually harassing people like her and others like her because of the whole tim hunt issue i just i i I cannot process that kind of mentality it's one thing to say well i disagree with you i don't think tim hunt what he's he was clearly trying to make a joke that failed what he's getting he doesn't deserve it's one thing to say that but then to actually go back and harass and troll the people who you disagree with i don't get it
2: yeah have your opinion fine but don't keep badgering people Yeah, you've had your opinion. You've had your fifteen minutes of fame, as it were. End of.
1: (laughs) That's the way I look at it. So I mean, it's yeah. I mean, hopefully things are getting better, and and I think I I hope they will. You know, it was nice to see after the whole Tim Hunt thing. I don't know if you saw any of those um, Twitter hashtags with distractingly sexy. Some of those are funny as hell. You know, because it's just women in doing their work as scientists and engineers, talking about distractingly sexy, and it's like being one of the least sexy pictures you could imagine. Mm-hmm. But it's just just because it's a woman in science. The one was brilliant because you know those little uh, red plastic trays that they'll put test tube vials, and then they'll you know they'll have one of those droppers yeah. to just put solution in each one. Yeah. Someone tweeted that. <laughs> her male her male co-workers have a problem because they keep talking about her nice rack and it was one of the ra- <laughs> it was one of those tray racks <laughs> oh dear i was like nice well done <laughs> but so yeah i mean that that just brought a a different perspective on uh, what they have to deal with which sucks now fortunately on a lighter note seeing as how she is an aerospace engineer we decided to talk about spacey things and she is a big time star wars nerd so Mm -hmm. we even got a little bit of that in there oh yeah so uh let's get off this dark moody stuff for now and uh, let's go to something a little bit lighter what do you think
2: yeah definitely
1: Uh, i've got a question for you regarding well we know that the new horizons is about to get to pluto which is amazing I, I have a feeling that the answer to this is simply because we can, but what mm-hmm. what are we doing going to take a look at Pluto?
8: I think by, uh, going to take a look at Pluto, we'll be able to learn a lot more about our solar system and the formation of it. I mean, even now, we're learning a lot about how Pluto formed, which is, you know, I don't know if you were, uh, if you read up on the press conference they had about the moon, about how they had these mm-hmm. chaotic, orbits, and they're completely different from anything that we've seen. And I think by learning, you know, about stuff like that and learning about clues to formation of our own solar system, it's going to help us learn a lot more about, you know, not just our, our solar system, but, you know, other systems out there, um, help us gain more knowledge about how these kind of systems form, and even help us, you know, understand a little bit more about Earth's history and its formation and stuff like that. I think that, you know, by learning these kinds of things... It gives us a little bit more insight into our own history here on Earth.
1: Well, that's cool, and of course, because we can. So.
8: <laughs> oh yeah, and yeah, and it really, really bleep and cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, just
1: absolutely. I mean, come on. There's now something on a comet for crying out loud.
8: Oh God, That, that, that is was
1: just. Uh, that's mind blowing. That is so. Well, yeah, un- get out of
8: here! It, that's uncre- it, it was incredible to watch that. Yeah, just. I, I can't imagine the emotion that those scientists that had worked on that project had. I just... Oh, yeah. Uh, and,
1: and even though it, it didn't go as they had hoped, the fact that the thing came back to life and it was like, hey, 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 I'm still here, that's just like, wow, oh, yeah. this is so cool.
8: Oh, yeah. Landing, landing on a comet in and of itself is an incredible achievement. So I was... And I was just... Oh, my gosh. I was so excited when I heard it, that he woke... That Philly woke back up. It was like, yes! Yes, you're back! <laughs>
1: So okay, now relate, relate. It's alive, alive. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> related yeah. to those two things. The one thing that, mm-hmm. that really is just so disappointing in a way is that it took nine years to get to Pluto. It took ten years to get to that comet. In both cases, both vessels reached roughly thirty-four to thirty-six thousand miles an hour. Uh, Voyager one's max speed was thirty-eight thousand miles an hour. It, that seems to be the fastest that we can get these things to travel. Why is that?
8: The, the restriction mainly is just, you know, efficiency uh, of, for fuel and system and propulsion systems. It's just the technology that we have right now. In order to be efficient and be able to go further, you have to have, you know, systems that don't necessarily propel you quickly but will get you there and allow you to build speed up over time and be more efficient. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Bill Nye is talking about, the light sail, the
0: mm-hmm. system
8: that just uh, was tested. That's, it was a huge step in propulsion technologies, but it's not going to get you anywhere really fast. It's just propulsion. You can either do chemical propulsion and get you somewhere really quickly and then be done and not have any more propellant. But if you have systems that, you know, chug you along a little bit at a time, those are more efficient and it enables you to do more if you need to maneuver, stuff like that. So that's just the, where the technology is
1: right now in a nutshell right okay so i mean that's fair enough but do we are there any other options that can even really be done i mean obviously warp drive (laughs) that's not gonna happen in our lifetime if ever Um, Uh,
8: yeah well we can hope right come on don't don't rain on the on the geek pride parade here
1: (laughs) point there can always be something that happens that just suddenly is like oh my god we didn't know we could do this but now we can Nine. Yeah. Yes, I, I understand that. But I yeah. kind of look at it this way. Oh, yeah. If it doesn't happen, I won't be surprised because I've said all along it no, probably won't sure, happen. Yeah. If it does happen, it's
8: like, oh my yeah. God. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's just with the current technology that we have right now, you're trading efficiency for speed. And, you know, would you rather get there somewhere really quickly and then be out of propellant and that be it? Or would you prefer to have, you know, a. a a more efficient system. It, yeah, For, it's for those of us who want
1: to go farther and faster and see more, it just really stinks that you have to wait 10 years to get to a comet. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> oh,
8: yeah. And, and space, you know, space in and of itself is just, you know, it's a huge distance that we're talking about flying through. So it, it takes a while to get there, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, so we're basically stuck right now then.
8: Yeah, and a, lo- and a lot of the maneuvers that you're talking about, sometimes, you know, you use orbital you know, slingshot maneuvers, mm-hmm. I guess is the best way to put it, you know, and you use gravity uh, of other planets to make yourself to make the spacecraft a little bit more efficient and stuff like that. That helps out. But it's just, you know, in order to conserve propellant and, you know, not have to carry a massive system with tons and tons of fuel, which is another thing, you know, having, you have to carry the fuel with you, mm-hmm. stuff like that. It's It's a more efficient system, but it's not a very fast system.
1: Right, and I guess you're always having to fight the uh, gravity pull of the sun as well, correct?
8: There's a lot of gravities that you're fighting. It's, you know, but yeah, I... I Well, you know, it's not like
1: you can just send something off, head it off to a planet and just say, okay, I don't need to use any more propellant, I'm at speed because there's always going to be something trying to slow it down, correct?
8: Well, yeah, it, it depends on, a lot of it's based on proximity and stuff like that. But, yeah, I would, I would say for the most part that, yeah, you're always getting a little bit of a pull from something, you know, which is why comets go around the sun rather than, you know, they don't just slingshot around and go off into no man's land. You're always experiencing a little bit of pull from something. But, you know, for the, it just depends on proximity, I guess, would be the best answer I could give. <laughs> okay, no, that's <laughs> proximity, fair enough. Proximity to an orbital body.
1: I figured you of all people would be able to answer That's seeing as how, uh, you know, your your favorite What was your favorite subject in college? Orbital Dynamics
8: 101? Uh, Yeah, I I (laughs) did love that if I had to pick a favorite class, though, I would probably say my senior design class because that was the kind of accumulation of my satellite design team. Um, the way it worked is you could do satellite design as an extracurricular. You know, we weren't we we're an engineering school. We weren't known for our athletic prowess. But <laughs> we did have a lot of design teams. We had concrete canoe and solar car and, and Formula One and all that stuff, and that was kind of, the, you know, our – Athletics, quote unquote. So for me, I could do that for the first three years, and then my fourth year, it finally counted as credit. And for me, that was just like, yes, I can finally get credit for doing this you know, <laughs> thing that I've been doing for three years. College credit, hooray! Well, yeah, it was it was but athletics.
1: Yeah, it was just mental athletics.
8: I'm sure that's what our football team tells themselves, you know, when they're rocking themselves to sleep at night. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they, they might be better. Our football team was struggling when I was there. They might be better now. I don't keep up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the college experience was different because it was everybody was a nerd. I mean, heck, our football cheer I think was like, oh gosh, what was it? D to the X, D Y D X. E to the x dx cosine secant tangent sine 3.14159 PV equals NRT come on minor victory. That was our cheer <laughs> at the band did at football games, and I'm not even making that up.
1: <laughs> I love it. Oh my god, I am not a dumb guy. All the stuff you talk about, I understand it. You know, that you're talking about acceleration yes. and, and gravity and perigee and apogee and all that, and I know how they all relate to each other, and and, and all yeah. I know how. When you you affect one thing here, it changes all the other things in some degree. I get all that, but you throw a formula in front of me, and my brain just short-circuits. I love that stuff. That's why I just (laughs) give you total credit for what you do, regardless of gender. That's just...
8: Oh, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You are
1: are smarter than me there. I said it.
8: (laughs) (laughs) Me me and my other X chromosome appreciate that that very much.
1: I want to get your opinion on something. The whole thing with that EM drive, that that microwave engine, I don't know what to think of that, because you have the guys saying, yes, here, I did it. You have China saying, yes, we replicated it. You have NASA saying, to a degree, yes, we replicated it. But then you have all these other people saying, no, 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 that can't happen because of the principle of conservation of momentum. It can't happen, blah, blah, blah. Which just kind of drives me nuts, because it's like, okay, it works for what we know, But as much as we do know, there's a hell of a lot about this universe that we don't know. And we can't say for certain that the principles and laws that we have will apply to everything in the universe. Am I wrong on that one? Or what's your take on that sort of thing?
8: see, my take on that is, that is, it's going to take somebody a heck of a lot smarter than me to answer those (laughs) questions. (laughs) You know, I do my best to really immerse myself in the science for the most part, but sometimes you get into those theoretical physics, and my head just starts to fall off. It's just, (laughs) oh my gosh. Okay, so now you understand me and formula. Oh no, yeah, I I get it. (laughs) You know, I have a cousin that's a business major, and when he starts talking to me about portfolios and this and that and the other. I'm like, this is, this is what it's like when I talk to people about, you know, space stuff. This is it,
1: right here. Well, that space is hard. Uh, the Falcon 9 rocket exploded the other day, which still, after 18 successful runs, that's a really good track record. I don't care what anyone says about it. But, you know, and exactly. Then, and then there have been other things about, uh, I know with the ISS, and then we've got SpaceX, just in general, and Mars, and, and uh, the uh, the landers, and New Horizons, and all of these cool things going on. So, what things in the recent past or near future have you the most excited?
8: Oh, see, okay, for me, it's definitely the Europa mission. I am I have it, wanted them to have a mission there. When I found out it was in the budget, I was just. As you put it, squeen like a fangirl, <laughs> because that, that is the one place I have really wanted them to go. I feel like they're going to learn so much there. And, you know, we're looking for life in yeah. our own solar system. And, yes, we're doing that in other places, too. But I don't know why, but for some reason that just, for me, has mystified me. And I wanted them to have a mission there. And when they, the scientific instruments came out, I was just,
1: uh, mm-hmm.
8: that. Every little bit of information that's come out about the Europa mission, I'm just eating it up, and I'm I'm so stoked.
1: And I'm kind of with you on that one, because it's just like, okay, so they've chosen the eight instruments that they're going to use, and they're looking for signs of life, and this could, or even just just signs that, oh my God, there's an ocean there that that could support life. This is so cool.
8: Oh yeah, it's it's like Arthur. One of my all-time favorite Arthur C. Clarke quotes is, uh, "What is it?" one of my favorite quotes and I can't remember it Um, (laughs) it goes something like um, you know we are either alone in the universe or we are not and both prospects are equally terrifying and I'm it's it's a terrifying thought you know but I think that's more along the lines of intelligent life but I'm still just so excited about that, the prospect of finding somewhere else that's habitable, and not just habitable, but, you know, potentially has organisms on it. You know, mm-hmm. granted, it's going to be like a single-cell organism, nothing, you know, you can see without a microscope. But just uh, so, so excited. So Wait, much fangirling. Yes. You know, I, I'm <laughs> kind of
1: that way about, Pluto, about the whole Pluto mission, and I don't know why. It's just, I guess it's because this is just so freaking cool that we actually managed, considering the distance, we still, we have a ship that is now in visual range of the most distant planet that we know of. And it's just like, yeah. this is so cool that we're doing oh,
8: this. Yeah. Counting the days, man. Counting the days till July 14th.
1: One oh. last question for you. Are you oh. ready for Star Wars 7?
8: Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I I am still not emotionally recovered from seeing Han and Chewie reunited. Uh, that, oh, God.
1: Just, that whole trailer was just...
8: My baby's... Back.
1: Uh, well that and just like <laughs> oh my god that's a star destroyer on the surface oh, What?
8: Uh, just, just visually stunning and i love bb-8 for me yes well, as an engineer i'm still and trying to work out how, how he's a practical effect
1: yes I, when i first heard that i thought okay mark hamill's saying it's a practical effect there's no way he's just saying that just to just to play with people's minds and then they roll it on stage I was like, yeah.
8: oh, gosh. that I'm is so, so cool. I'm like, oh, I want to reverse-engineer you so bad. How do you work? Tell me your secret.
1: <laughs> well, you'll be able to. Supposedly, the toy's going to be released by Christmas. Mm, yeah,
8: it's on my wish list. Oh, believe yeah.
1: me, yes, it is. That, that yeah, and the original it. series, Unaltered, on Blu-ray. Give me that, and I'll be <sighs> so happy. Ah, that's another topic.
8: <laughs> don't, uh, yeah, don't even talk to me. Hashtag not my Sarlacc. Thing looks like a little shop <laughs> of horrors on Raw. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> we will talk
1: about that some other time. So, okay. I don't. Oh, come on. <laughs> but,
8: <laughs> uh, you, you get it. You get it. <laughs> oh, absolutely.
1: I get it. So, anyway, no, I, I do appreciate the time that you've I know that you're rushed for time. I appreciate this so much. I've wanted to talk to you for a while, and uh, I'm glad that we finally had a reason to do it and a time to do it. Uh, so and what uh, Mark? What Mark? Would, what we usually do uh, is when we, whenever we do get a chance to talk to someone, we will send over a patch uh, for TGP nominal, and all we ask is that you take a photo with the patch and you become an honorary crew member. And um, all right, I guess that's it. Thank you so much.
8: Uh, not a problem. Much obliged, John. Really appreciate it. it. Was a
2: lot of fun. One of the other things I noticed, and I was kind of. Conf- <laughs> I was kind of joining in the conversation when I actually heard the piece um, <laughs> because you were talking about when the shuttle mission folded up and yeah and the way that you both were upset on the last day of the launch so when, yeah. it, when it when it touched down um, and I have got an audio boo recording that I did live at the time and I am in tears as I'm recording it Um, and I I, after I I listened to this interview I actually played back my audio boot and I noticed that my eyes were welling up again just listening to that piece
1: yeah it's (sighs) what can you do you know NASA made the choice I I understand the shuttle was big. It was expensive to run and all of that. But you know what? It was all that we had.
2: Yeah. What
1: are you doing getting rid of it when you have nothing nothing. to replace it? Exactly. I mean, I know it was a bit of a white
2: elephant anyway. I mean, after after Challenger, nobody wanted to um, use the shuttle for their commercial thing. So you know the money was drying up there um, and, and some say and I, I think it's very true that um, this is the reason why the space station was, was built to give the shuttle something to do
1: it wouldn't surprise me but I mean in fairness there have been reports of really bad mismanagement at NASA's top levels for a long time so I mean who's to say what was really causing the money to dry up you know, just, just just saying but you know regardless it doesn't matter that that's history mm-hmm. but yeah it's just yeah <laughs> but so that's like, you know, just what can you do
2: it is, it's one of those things and every single one of those shuttles had their own individual personality yeah and um, I think everybody has their favorite. <laughs> Well, when I say everybody, everybody in the space community, everybody who's, should I say it? Uh,
1: I know what you mean. mean, A geek. For me, (laughs) me, Columbia was my favorite just because it was the first one. Mm -hmm. I remember watching it launch live on TV. It's the one that made the first really big impression. So Columbia was always my favorite. It makes absolutely no sense, but that's the way it is.
2: Well, Discovery was always my favourite. And the reason for it... Discovery was always the workhorse. Whenever there was a problem... When... When Challenger... Had its ill-fated mission... um, Discovery was the next one to... To take, Mm. take it back into flight again. Yeah. When Columbia went... Discovery was the one to be there. When... Uh, Atlantis went up for the STS-125 mission to the, the Hubble Discovery was on standby just in case there was a problem <laughs> so that's why she has been my favourite of the, of the fleet and not only that on her last voyage William Shatner redid the um, Space, the Final Frontier Nice, um, and based it around Discovery um, mm-hmm. Which I still Wasn't have. that for the wake up call? Yes, it was. Yep. Mm-hmm. and I, I used to have that as my ringtone for <laughs> ah, <nice. laughs> for a while. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, Discovery's always been my favourite for yep. for that reason.
3: weebly.com that's spamheadproductions.weebly.com
2: Well that brings us nicely to the end of another action-packed episode before we go I would like to thank Stephanie Evans for taking time out to speak with us and to Phil Olsen for his piece about the, the arcade club and of course Mr. Berger for coming on board again
1: Oh, thank you, thank you, sir. I do appreciate it very much. I have no idea why I did that.
2: (laughs) So I think we'll end the show there, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of TGP Nominal. Just look for the relevant tab in the menu. Let us know what you think of the show.
8: Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com
2: because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes... The RSS feed, TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to review us and give us a five-star rating. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio Group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us.